Hello and welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. Currently I am in Australia on a tour. So this week I have for you a particularly entertaining conversation I recently had with a class guest. And before I get into it, what have I got to say? Yeah, just a quick little plug for a few gigs. This gig that you're about to listen to, it was recorded in Dublin in the Sugar Club. I'm going to be back in Dublin. I have three live podcasts in Vicker Street in April. I'm in Ulster Hall in Belfast. I'm in the Cork Opera House. Those tickets are nearly gone. I think that's in March, near the end of March. My UK tour, there's still tickets left for Liverpool and Birmingham. Um, I'm in the Glore Theatre in Ennis. And also, I don't know are these on sale yet, but if they're not, they will be soon. I have a gig coming up in Barcelona and Madrid, which is in Spain and Catalan. So, there you go, that's the crack, alright? I don't want to interrupt the live podcast, it's, it's, it's a particularly entertaining, enjoyable one. So just to let you know before I do it. This podcast is free, so please support this podcast via the Patreon page. The Patreon is where my regular source of income comes from. It what's make, what makes the podcast possible. It what it's what encourages me to have a weekly fucking podcast without fail. It gives me a job. It's my fucking life. The Patreon is is my life, and thank you to everyone who is a patron of this podcast. And I encourage you. If you if you are enjoying the podcast and you can afford to give me the price of a coffee or a pint once a month, please become a patron of this podcast. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. If you can't afford it, you can listen for free. It's a model that's based on kindness and soundness and suggestion and it works pretty good. It works pretty good, lads. That's all I'm going to say. Um, some people... Our patrons, other people's aren't. Other people's aren't. Other people aren't. And it works fucking brilliantly. I'm happy. I'm earning a living. You're getting a podcast. Thank you so much to everyone. Also, you can like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, write a little review of the podcast. Similarly, if you bought my book, write a little review of the book on Amazon. And just recommend it to a friend. All right. So this live podcast that I'm about to play for you, I spoke to Professor Luke O'Neill from Trinity College, who's an expert in immunology and the immune system. And Luke is someone, I met him in like 2011, when I was doing a thing for Science Week. And I've met Luke several times since, at festivals and things, backstage. He's just a lovely, a lovely man. A really funny, kind person, and it radiates from him. But also someone who's an expert in their field, really, and really passionate about communicating. So, so if you're interested in hearing about the immune system, viruses, how viruses spread, I know it's particularly relevant at the moment with the coronavirus, antibiotics, arthritis, cancer, um, STDs, 
things like the ketogenic diet and how, how the ketogenic diet was, how different diets influence the immune system, how sleep influences the immune system. We speak about all of this in the following conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Yard. Do you know what I mean? Um, I can't wait to bring out my guest. So they're a, a professor of biochemistry and immunology in Trinity College, but they're also a, an incredibly gas cunt. Um, professor Luke O'Neill. What is the crack, sir? I've never been called a gas cunt before, blind, but that's the first thing, you know. It's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit sobering, you know, but I'm very honoured to be called gas cunt by you, of course. It's marvellous. It, it is, it's the highest, uh, it's the highest accolade you can accolade. get from a man from Limerick. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the, op- what's the opposite of a gas cunt? Not the anti-crack. Yeah, oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's right. The anti-crack yeah. Or, yeah. or a bad buzz. <laughs> there used to be a lad in Limerick called Decky Bad Buzz. <laughs> Imagine you want the shit you need to do to get called Dicky Bad Buzz. Yeah, yeah. How did he get on? <laughs> did he, did he I, I, do you know what? I think it was unfair. It was an unfair. I, I, he used to get a bit serious at parties, but uh, the name stuck with him because it's also a great name. It's kind of badass as well, though. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, DJ Dicky Bad Buzz? <laughs> um. So, firstly, Luke, I want free medical advice from you. Yes. Uh, you're a professor of immunology. I'm going to Thailand in three weeks, so I got a tetanus and hepatitis injection on my shoulder. Right. And two days later, I have a strange pain there on my underarm, which I think may be my lymph nodes. Am I correct? I give you 12 hours. Rush, quick, go to the hospital immediately. No, no not as bad. No, blah, blah. you'll be all right. That, that means the vaccine's working. It's so, fantastic. The immune system is now being mobilised. So, Your lymph nodes are where it lives, you know, and now they're, they're getting going in there now so, to protect you. So the lymph, the lymph system is... That's the part of the body that, that responds to infection and yeah. invasive things, yeah? That's right. That's like the main place where the immune system lives. So if in, a, in your skin, say, an infection, the immune system carries that bug to your lymph node. It actually drags it and in there, and all the T cells are in the lymph node, and they beat the thing up. So it's, it's the place where all the action happens. Where are all the lymph nodes in the body? Here. And you know, even when you get to feel these swellings here in your when neck, you say, under your yeah. armpit, the inguinal is down in there. Anywhere that's sort of a, near an opening, I suppose, you're going to see lymph nodes. You know, so near the mouth is a good place here in your neck, for instance. All and over your body, you have lymph nodes. What's the purpose of the body having multiple lymph nodes in different places? Different. Like, why are they so strategic? It's a bit like... Bo- it's, it's, bollocks, it's, armpits and throat. It's a bit... Sounds like a porno <laughs> film. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it is very strategic. In other words, g- get the immune system near where the action is. Have a depot with the soldiers wow. in it you see ready to fight i suppose so they're so, spread all over the body for that reason would it be so if i get with say a chest infection yeah does that mean the armpits are absolutely working? there's even ones in your chest as well the special draining lymph nodes there as well so there's loads of them all over your body and they're, and they're there ready to do, do, the, do the hard work i suppose when the infection and comes is pus lymphatic yeah. fluid i'm so glad you've asked about pus yeah is it very close to your heart did you ever have a look at pus it's i, I generally Generally, I'm not too interested in my own pus. <laughs> I'm trying to just get it down the toilet as soon as possible. Yeah. But pus is, like, what, like, I'll tell if you what I get a is. chest infection, 
Why does the doctor say it to me when I go into the doctor and I say I might have a bit of a chest infection? He says, yeah. what colour is your spit? Ah, yes, you see, because then so they can tell. So why does he ask that? Well, first of all, the pus thing's interesting. Pus is the dead cells. So if you have, a, say, a spot in your skin or whatever, mm-hmm. all that pus is dead white blood cells who've done their job and now died, and they fill up that fluid, I suppose. You know? Yeah. And there can be some germs in there as well. You'll be careful. But it's often sterile pus, by the way, because all the germs have been killed. And it's the troops that have died, I suppose, that are there, for yeah. instance. You know? Yeah, the colour of your, 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 your uh, excrete. Your mucus can sometimes say if it's a virus or a bacteria. So if it's very green, that means it's mainly bacterial. If it's clear, it could be a virus. There's some evidence for that. So the colour of the, the, the secretions then might tell you what the pathogen might be that's infected you. And sometimes if I go into my doctor and I just say, just please give me an antibiotic, and he goes, all right, grand, but it's not going to do anything. Yeah. Like, wh- what's that about? Big mistake. Never give antibiotics for, for bacterial infections, for instance. Never do that. Because some doctors are desperate to give their patients something sometimes. Because then away. you feel like, I'm after giving you 60 quid and I want to walk away with a box or something, sir. Yeah, value for money. Yeah. yeah. Not many, not many, any GPs are, not many do it, though, remember. But yeah. sometimes they give, if you have a viral infection, right? Uh, penicillin won't work. Antibiotics don't work for viruses. But sometimes you're at risk of a bacterial infection on top. So they sometimes give you an antibiotic to stop you getting a bacterial infection after a virus, for instance. And that may be one bacterial reason. chest infection is more serious, isn't it? can be more serious, exactly, yeah. So sometimes they're doing it prophylactically to protect you against the bacteria that might come. Because your virus, you see, makes you immunosuppressed, kind of. It beats up the immune system a bit, and your immune system isn't working. So measles is a good example, by the way. One reason measles is so dangerous is it puts you at risk of bacteria later. So therefore, you've got to watch that as well. So sometimes they give antibiotics to prevent the bacterial stuff that comes later, I suppose. Um, so the first time I met you, it was about, it was 2012. I was doing a thing for Science Week. And I didn't really know what immunology was. And one of the first things when I was chatting to you that I found utterly fucking fascinating, because I assumed immune system. So immune system is bacteria, viruses. And then you said to me, you were looking at arthritis and yeah. cancer from the perspective of the immune system, was I was going, wow, I didn't think cancer or arthritis had anything to do with the immune yeah. system. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, it turns out the immune system is a bit like, you know, you're infected with a bacteria and the troops come out and fight the thing and you get better, right? Sometimes it's a civil war. So your own troops turn on your own body, right? In arthritis, your joint is now suddenly full of the immune system for reasons as yet unknown, by the way. We don't know why. It's called autoimmunity because it's auto-reaction. Suddenly, your, your joint is filled up with the immune system or your gut in the case of colitis. Your brain in MS, for instance, suddenly the immune system goes rogue and begins to attack your own tissues. And this means it's a very important thing to study because obviously, if we can find out more about that, then we make them up in new treatments. So it goes rogue. It goes basically out of kilter so that's and begins what, to turn on your own body. So yeah. autoimmune is when your own immune system attacks itself. Yep, yep. Is it fair to say that there's an increase in autoimmune? There is. That's the big why one the we fuck, have. What the fuck is that about? Yeah, there's all kinds of... Uh, <laughs> it could be cheese, you see. I don't know. Gorgonzola. I, d- no. I did hear. Uh, I heard... Um, that's a joke, by the way. It's not cheese. Any cheese oh, makers right, no. Cheese doesn't cause arthritis. Because I want no, to make that clear. My, yeah. my, friend, my, friend, uh, my friend's mother has MS. Yep. And the entire family are lactose intolerant. Ah, yes. And right. they, they reckon there's a connection between That's the interesting. two. That could and, be a connection. And the mother doesn't, when she doesn't drink dairy and has a ketogenic diet, her 
symptoms of MS are, are not as prevalent. Yep. She still has MS, but it's not flaring up. Very interesting. Yes, these are mysteries. I mean, we don't know why these things are going up the whole time. And there's no doubt they are. So things like colitis in the gut, incidences like this. Now, the question is, why would that be? What Pardon are the me? prevailing theories? T- two big theories. One is something in the environment, some toxin that, we, that wasn't there before, some plastics or some kind of byproduct of some process that we don't know what it is, you know? The second one is the hygiene hypothesis. Are you familiar in Limerick with the hygiene hypothesis? I... You know, wash yourself. I carry with me, because I'm on tour all the time and meeting people, I always have my antibacterial gel. Big mistake. Ah, fuck Big off. Mis- <laughs> Are you by, taking the piss? Flying by, you have the strongest immune system in Ireland, I predict, because of your lifestyle, you know. You've Are lived you in Limerick for a start. That's going to be tough. And then all this, well, you, you know, all this dirt, basically. So dirt is good. Well, I, like, I, I meet a lot of people all the time. I shake a lot of hands. Yes, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of contact with people. Yeah. So, and then as a result of that, my thing is door handles, so I'm straight for the alcohol rob yeah. when I see a, a door handle. Yeah, that works is up that to a wrong? point. That works up to a point, but not if you're a young, healthy person, your immune system is there to fight that stuff, remember. So your so body what, should be able to fight it. What should anyway. I be doing? Should we just go and fuck the door handle? Exactly. Not literally. No, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> unless... Unless you're that desperate. Jesus, my boy. Being on tour must be awful. <laughs> no. Um, here's the best study of all, right, done on this. So a, a very good friend of mine, an immunologist. We've got many friends. It's a great profession, by the way. You meet lots of people and you get on with them. And a guy in Ghent, had a guy called Bart Lamprecht, best study ever, okay? If you're exposed to cow shit, and this is true now, right, especially cow dung, as a baby, right, in the first three, six months of life, if you expose a baby, they've done this experimentally, if you can believe it, much less asthma allergy when that baby grows up to be a child, okay? So a bit of dirt oh. when you're young is good for you. And the reason is it trains the immune system to behave itself. You know what I mean? In other words, the immune system gets exposed to this nasty germs, begins to figure out good from evil, as it were, you know? And for some reason, then, it doesn't react to your own. Asthma is like an allergic in your lungs, you know? And there's good evidence the hygiene thing is true. So certainly, especially for, for babies, actually, a bit of dirt is a good thing. Now, the t- type of dirt, I'm not talking about dog shit. Yeah, that. You know, it's mainly being on a farm strength. There was one study, while I'm at it, there was one study done. If a woman who is carrying a, ba- you know, a baby and she's maybe in the second trimester, if she spends three months on a farm, just goes and lives on a farm for three months, lesser incidence of allergy when her baby's born and the baby grows up. So e- even in the womb, the, ba- the fetus is being exposed to these germs and now learning how to handle that sort of, you know, friend from foe idea. But if you leave the ed- immune system uneducated, it gets confused and it suddenly begins to go a bit rogue. That's, ironically, that's the big idea. isn't like the entire start of your field comes from someone who noticed that uh, milkmaids who are around cows didn't get smallpox. Absolutely. I'm glad you Edward, asked me well, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that Edward, was Jenner. Yeah. Jenner yeah. He ripped off a farmer, though, called Jesty. Get this. Go on. There was a local farmer near where Jenner lived, right? You know who Edward Jenner is? Yeah, Edward Jenner we discovered a vac- vaccine for smallpox in 1790. If I yeah. was, which we'll do later, by the way. We've got a sample of smallpox here. <laughs> and I'm going to release it now into the room, right? Uh, one in, none of you are vaccinated because smallpox was eliminated by a vaccine, remember? Yeah. Nowadays, no vaccine. So one in three get infected with it, okay? Of, of this room, right? One in three of those will die of smallpox. One but back in, then? Back, even now, if I was to okay. infect them. One in three be disfigured for life. They go blind, the pock yeah. marks. And one in three get over it. And that's a very interesting difference why that is. But it was known that milkmaids never got smallpox. Their skin was always very smooth, you see. And there was anecdotal evidence they were picking up cowpox when they're milking a cow. Yeah. And the cowpox looks a bit like smallpox, but doesn't cause any disease. And the immune system was being trained now to recognize cowpox and smallpox. 
smallpox. So when they got smallpox later, their immune system was ready and could beat up the, the smallpox and they wouldn't get the disease. That's the base. Vaccination comes from vacay. Cow, you see, because the very first oh. evidence was... There you have it now, a little factoid for you there. So um, the, uh, that's what a vaccination... Because, because, and Louis Pasteur, so let's call this vaccination in honour of Jenner. pasteurisation. Exactly, same thing. Yeah, there precisely. you go. Now, um, Jenner becomes very famous, and he becomes a fellow of the Royal Society, like myself, you know. Very famous. He's given 20 grand uh, guineas by the UK, the British government, to, to thank him. Napoleon called him the cleverest man in Europe, for instance, because suddenly smallpox is now, you know, conquered almost. A guy called Jesse goes, hang on a minute. I'm the local farmer. I told Jenner what to do there, right? Wow. Where's my money? They bring Jesse to London. There's a painting of him. They gave him two golden lancets made of gold. That was his reward. He says, where's the money? He says, you know, affect the lancets. He wanted cash. But they gave him lancets anyway. But Jesse deserves a bit of credit because he, he actually was the one to say, hang on a minute, you know, that was kind of my idea. But even still, Jenner did an experiment. This is the best part of this story. Jenner infected a boy whose name was James Phipps. We even know his name, right? With cowpox. And then tried to give him smallpox. Pretty dangerous. You wouldn't get ethical approval. Yeah. Didn't get smallpox. That was the evidence he was looking for then. It was like an experiment. You know what I mean? So he was able to get experimental. What, what rationale is general? I'm going to get this child now and I'm, I may possibly infect him. Like, did he get consent from the parents? No, it looks like he didn't. There's a painting of, a famous painting of, of Phipps struggling and Jenner doing the, you know, giving him the bloody thing. Well, so um, it's a bit dodgy that. It must so be many of the, but, the early scientists as well around the Enlightenment, they were doing a lot of dodgy shit. They were. There was one fella, it was, I can't remember his name, but he used to self-experiment to the point of... Uh, he used to shove things into his eyes. He put uh, hu- human shit into his own eyes to see what would happen. Yep. All of this stuff. Yep. And, and the worst part is after years and years of cutting himself and putting other people's vomit into his cuts, he, no benefit to any of his research. Yeah, that's right. I know. Yes. None. It's the but saddest he, but he, thing. But by me, he had a damn good time doing it, obviously. He must have enjoyed that kind of thing, you know, whatever his thing. Um, you know, Isaac Newton stuck a needle in his own eye, did, for instance, yeah. to, to see what, how light would yeah. change. Can you yeah, imagine? Yeah, There's yeah. bravery for science. We like yeah. these people. They're brave. You know, they're going out there and doing He stuff, was incredibly so. determined, though, Newton, wasn't he? He was extremely yeah. determined. He was, yeah. Um, so the, the, the gist of it, from what I understand, like, okay... Im- immunology is you, you give someone a little bit of the disease. Yeah, yeah. Like the other day, so I got tetanus, uh, hepatitis A, and also typhoid. Yeah. Did they give me a small bit of typhoid? They don't give the actual bug itself, because that will give you a typhoid, obviously. Yeah. And Jenner, Jenner's but genius... But I felt like shit for the rest of the oh, day. Oh, you did, absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah. that's what that means. No, Jenner was, had the genius to know cowpox looked a bit like smallpox, but, but wasn't, wasn't causing disease, right? Yeah. Pasteur is the next guy. He does diphtheria. He boils up dipth- the bacteria that cause diphtheria, boils it up in a, you know, in a test tube and injects that as dead. Won't cause disease. Dead but the immune diphtheria. system can okay. now recognise that, you see. And they're called antigens. That's the bit of the bug that the immune system recognises. And lo and behold, when the real bad guy comes along, your troops are now trained. And this thing called memory in the... Your, the immune system remembers. You know, that, that's why when you're a child, you get a cold, you won't get another one maybe again. Because yeah. you know, your immune system has evolved to remember. And that's the base of vaccination. So you always use what's called an, an attenuated strain, one that's maybe boiled up or maybe you know, modified by chemicals and something, and then you get a protection against that infection when you actually get it. To take it back to the, the thing with, with kids today, like little babies now, like... The environment is incredibly sanitised, you know, yeah. sanitising the bottle, keeping everything clean with bleach. How does a parent with a newborn effectively go 
I want my child to have germs, but not too many. Yeah, that's, that's the tricky bit, isn't like it? How, way, how, you know? how do you do Let it? Let them play in the garden. That's for definite. And eat some soil. There was a stu- I'm not joking. You know, get a baby, bit of soil, bang. You know, that's good for Literally the Literally eat a bit of soil or... or let, let them out and play in the garden. Get your hands dirty in, the, in, the park, in you know, Whatever it is. A bit of muck is a simple way to do this, by the Why way. And there was a study on children. Because it's, it's got, it's got feces, strangely, in it, you know. But not so much that they go blind. That's right, precisely. It's, it's all a dose thing. You can't overdo it. But you've got to be careful, of course, and keep an eye on the baby and make sure yeah. nothing untoward happens. But a bit of normal living. You know, if you keep your house spotlessly clean, that's a bad thing. That's, there's justification to everybody. Don't clean your house very often, you know. And now it's, a, it's the natural world, you know. I bring them to a farm for a while. You know, go, go a little, you know, whatever, go for a walk in the country. These things are, are seen to be beneficial, I think. That's the advice. How do you feel about, like, so when I go to Dunn's and I'm buying my cleaning products, I'm always looking for the fucking 99.9% of bacteria going, yeah, fuck that, man. Because <laughs> you feel a bit like a, like a general, you know what I mean? Just going eradicating all the germs in your house. Is that silly? Should I not be using yeah. all these sprays? Should I just be do, doing soap and water instead? Or? Absolutely. Or in your, or to, probably in the, in the toilet is a bit of bleach. Yeah, you know, the yeah, toilet yeah, will yeah. gather germs, let's face it. Yeah. You know, so toilets are probably okay. But there's no point spraying all your surfaces. That's, a ridic- you know, that's just ridiculous. Because, again, you're not having the natural environment then in a way. So I'd, I'd advise against that to people. Not to be spraying their whole house with um, bleach and those kind of things. Um, so I had some class questions for you now. Oh, actually, we were talking earlier on about HIV. Yes. This is what I want to yeah. know about. So, yep. so, like, this is what I want to figure out. So, the one thing we know about HIV is it, arri- it started sometime in the 50s in the Congo in Africa. Yep. But HIV used to be... So, HIV is human uh, immunovirus. Immunodeficiency virus. virus. Yep. And, but it was SIV, which is simian monkeys. That's right. Yep. So we know that HIV used to only affect monkeys and then something happened whereby it all of a sudden affected humans. Yep. It meant, it, and it happened in the Congo, so some people say someone ate or fucked a monkey, but we've been eating and fucking monkeys for a long time, <laughs> not just in the 1950s. We have. But then there's another bizarre conspiracy theory that a Swiss team of immunologists yep. went to the Congo to give uh, people a vaccine against smallpox. They took a culture from a monkey and that HIV was accidentally created by humans. That's not true. That's a conspiracy theory. I'm yeah. just putting it out there. Yeah. What, how yeah. the fuck does well, SIV turn into HIV? Well, if you're an immunologist, you love HIV. That sounds a bit strange, I know. But, <laughs> but well, I remember I was training at the time when that virus emerges. It That's was a fascination. Thing, you were an immunologist when, the, when, I was. when AIDS was this Absolutely. thing and no one knew what it was. This massive mystery. And a good friend of mine in uh, Massachusetts who was an infectious disease guy said to me one day, very strange patients turning up in my hospital. I don't know what's causing this. And this is 1981, 82? Yeah, early 80s. They these they've strange little bumps on their hands. They're getting a strange, rare type of pneumonia, which they'd rarely see in people. You know, what's causing this? You know? And there were like tens and twenties, hundreds of them, often gay men were the first to present. You know, with these. And there was a big mystery. What the hell is causing? And then they were dying even worse, of course. They, mm-hmm. got wor- they, couldn't, they couldn't treat them. They got worse and worse and worse, and they died. And, and finally the virus... G- gay cancer. Absolutely. Well, it was yeah. the gay plague, it was called, outrageously. Yeah. They got, even at that time, Blimey, they knew haemophiliacs were getting it, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a clue, yeah. kind of. And that was ignored. And that's got to be ignored, a gay yeah. thing. It was a way to, you know, 
anti-gay sentiment. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, Luc Montagnier, a guy in Paris in the Pasteur, finds the virus, you know, and it, there it is. He wins the Nobel Prize for discovering this very what, interesting what virus. What year was that? Was... That was 84, I think, is when okay. he actually reported on it, you know. And then there was controversy. An, an American guy called Gallo said, oh, I found it first. And it, it turned out he'd been using a sample of Luc Montagnier's mm-hmm. lab stuff. So, so it was all very controversial at the time, you know, who, who actually discovered it. But now there's a virus that caused it. The question then is, what's the virus doing? Next big breakthrough, it infects the immune system. So it specifically goes into your T lymphocytes and kills them. And the T lymphocyte is like your general of the immune system. So it goes straight to the uh, action, mm-hmm. if you like. But the big mystery, as you say, by was how did this happen? You know? yeah. And there were a few theories. Yeah, one was the, the conspiracy one. That's not true for definite, right? Yeah. It looks like in the 1940s, uh, um, sort of colonialists, as we called them earlier, were moving into parts of Africa that hadn't been in before. And there were monkeys there with SIV. Yeah, and a monkey already bit someone is the idea and then some of the virus goes into the human now it doesn't cause any much disease in monkeys it's like having a, a mild cold and the monkeys recover you know this thing it mutates into HIV and now that's lethal in humans we're not the natural host if you like you know and then see a virus wants to keep you alive remember so they can spread you know that's its mission in a way you know so wow. it kills the host it's a negative so it becomes very virulent and suddenly then HIV becomes a feature and begins to spread and it's in, in T, it's in your T lymphocytes they live in your blood that's where the, the immune system lives that's why it's spread by blood it's as simple as that you know and it, it could be hemophiliacs it could be through sex gay or straight sex blood exchange happens and now hey presto the virus begins to spread in the population I, I have a, a mad theory right um i i when i think of climate change right i sometimes think what if humans are a virus right and the earth is like our host and basically we're destroying the planet like a virus and then one day someone's going to figure out how to make a rocket and that's like the us sneezing and then we end up infecting mars yeah and earth just but can you give me that again? I just no, but it's second. like imagine humans are like a cold. Oh yeah, like we're so, like viruses like, and we're infecting the earth. We're on the earth now, and we're really destroying the planet. We're killing the planet. Yeah, and we're either faced with fixes, or yeah, very very rich people can get the technology to live on Mars. Yeah, yeah. And essentially, if that once that rocket leaves, it's like the earth sneezes the virus out onto another person, and then yeah. we infect Mars. Yeah. I'll get back to you. I think um, there could be evidence for that, but we haven't seen it. Certainly, it's a good question: Is the planet killing going to kill us effectively? Earth wants to get rid of us, maybe. Yeah, because you know? we're making it a mess of it for everybody else. Kind well, of Earth's going to be grand when we're gone. Well, well, that's right. Exactly. I mean, when people say we're destroying the planet, it's like the planet's going to win. Yeah, yeah, and that's then right. there'll be new creatures. I don't know, dinosaurs would, would we'll come back again. You never know; yeah. they may re-evolve. Yeah. Well, we, we wouldn't be here if the dinosaurs weren't extinct. Remember that, that that's allowed true, yeah. a gap, a gap for us to evolve. Our ancestor then was a tiny, furry creature, like a mouse, by the way, that we're descended from. Yeah, you know? and the dinosaurs had to get wiped out by that meteorite, and then we could evolve. A chance event, by the way. You know that well, wasn't the little you know, mouse that wasn't was designed. I hasten to add. A meteorite hits randomly, and then yeah. we can evolve. That's why we're here, basically. Without the dinosaurs becoming extinct, we wouldn't be here. Um, I heard that as a result of climate change, there's viruses that are held in Arctic ice, yep. 
and that because the Arctic ice is melting, that viruses are being released. I- is that true, and is it something to no. be concerned? No, there's no evidence okay. for that yet, but there is evidence for climate change increasing certain pathogens on Earth. Lyme disease is a good example, right? So that, that, that particular bug likes warmer weather, as it were, you know. Is Lyme and disease the one that happens when you, when you get bitten by a deer tick? It's a, absolutely a bacterial yeah. thing, isn't it? And, and, and ticks bite you, the bacteria called Borrelia goes into your system, causes a big irritation. That's going up in incidence because of global warming. So we may see more pathogens getting more successful because of global warming is one fear that climate change will, uh, will result in. And what do you think of, like, like uh, uh, water is a big carrier of disease, isn't it? Yep. And one of the big fears with climate change is that we will run out of fresh water and that there will be less hygiene in water. Yep. Floods are terrible for diseases. Yep. I mean, what... That's another fear. Yeah, absolutely. Flooding will always increase infection anywhere, for instance, because these germs like to live in water, and the creatures they live in are often water-dwelling creatures. So again, you you can see infection spreading because of flooding. That's the other worry that people have. Like, what does something like a hurricane or a typhoon do to a country when it comes to the... Yeah, that's a great question. There's always an increase in the rate of infection in those countries. Partly because of stress, remember, because it's a very stressful thing, and your immune system doesn't do well if you're stressed, for instance. That's one reason. But secondly, some of these pathogens love those traumatic conditions in a way, you know, and then they can spread more readily. They, they want to spread. Their mission is to infect us, remember. It's always a war. The immune system evolved to fight these buggers, as we call them technically, because without the immune system, we'd all be dead, you know. And it's always a battle between the two the whole time, you know, and therefore we see the immune system doing its job, I suppose. But then sometimes these germs get the upper hand and we see these diseases emerge, you know, so that's the big fear. Um, yeah, one of the questions I had was to ask you about the impact of uh, trauma or uh, mental health or stress on our immune systems. Does it happen and how how does that work? There's there's two very hot areas in immunology at the moment. If you go to the big, I go to these conferences all the time, right? And and, and what what, what are people talking about in the bar? And, you know, we're all excited. One is the brain immune axis, that that connection is a fascination and getting more and more scientific. It was a bit flaky for a while, you know. You get a bit stressed, you catch a cold, can that be true and stuff. More and more evidence, intimate connection between the two. There's no doubt about it at all, you know. Did you know many of the nerves in your body aren't in your brain, they're in your gut, Mm-hmm. And the gut connects to different organs through the nervous system, you see. So there's a real connection from the gut now to your liver and your kidneys and so on. That's one example, you know. So that interaction between the brain and the immune system. And no doubt, by the way, now, chronic stress is a huge negative. Increased risk of infection for definitely, because the immune system doesn't like chronic stress. Think how cortisol is in your body, and that suppresses the immune what response. What is cortisol? I've heard cortisol. That's a hormone, yes. Is that the it? hormone that gets released when you're under stress? Absolutely, especially chronic stress. Like yeah. Low-level, low-grade stress, you see more cortisol. That's an immunosuppressant, so the immune system can't work as well. That's the big one. You know? Secondly, cancer. The immune system fights tumours. As, as, in fact, as we sit here, a good example I give is as we're all sitting here, over the course of an hour... One tumour cell will arise in your body. Right? Oh, don't tell me that. Yep. And luckily, blind boy, you're so healthy, your immune system zaps it. Bang, kills the tumour cell. Fantastic. One job of the immune system is to kill cancer. You so, see, it's alien, you know. Now, the trouble is, if you're immunosuppressed, you get cancer. That's why HIV patients got uh, Kaposi sarcoma, because that's a type of skin cancer, you know, because their immune system is being turned off, you know. So we need the immune system to fight infection, but we also need to fight cancer. Any kind of low-level stress increases risk of those. What, what's the point of my body generating a, a cancer cell while I'm doing a podcast? Yeah. 
That's a great question. Like, serious, because it's, it's Are just... Are you insured like, now? Podcasting causes cancer. Is that no, your No, but it's just like, it, it doesn't make sense. It's like, why, why would my body bother its arse going, here's a bit of cancer there for the crack. See how we get on. Like, what, why? It's, well, that's the... Because, but, but cancer's not a virus. Cancer doesn't... Like, yeah. if, if it's a virus, it's like, I want to fuck you over, blind boy. I want to get in there and give you a cold. Well, but, let, well, let's remember, cervical cancer is caused by a virus, and that's why that vaccine is so, the HPV, really important vaccine to give to young people. Because there's, there's a cancer caused by a virus. So very rarely in but humans... not loads of cancer. Very rare cause, in humans, yeah. actually, yeah. Cancer is a mutation in a gene in your cells. Some kind of gene gets mutated, and that gene then, the product of that gene is overactive and causes the cancer to grow. That's what cancer is. Is it's a cancer like a if... I don't know, there was an architect in town building a building and I broke into the office and decided to fuck up his plans and then the, ne- then the builders build it wrong. Yeah. Is that what cancer is like? It's can- your, your, it fucks up your DNA. It do, absolutely. That's exactly what it does. And like things like smoking is bad. There's chemicals in smoke that mutate the DNA yeah. and cause cancer. They're called carcinogens. There's what is a carcinogen there. and what does it do? So a carcinogen is a chemical that reacts with your DNA directly and modifies the DNA. The gene is now changed and you get a mutant form of that protein. And that often is involved in cells growing and they grow out of control and form a tumour. Many of them are tumour suppressor genes. Our bodies are full of ways to suppress tumours. If they get mutated, that doesn't work either, and now the tumour grows. So it's a genetic difference in your DNA, you see. And then the immune system, luckily, in all of us, most of the time, fights that tumour and sees it as foreign and kills it, you know? And, of course, the risk then would be immunosuppression would would increase risk of cancer. What happens to... Okay, why do people get more cancers as they get older? The mutation rate goes up, first of all. The longer you're on Earth, right, you age, which is a very interesting process as well, by the way, and the mutations begin to build up as you age. That's one thing. Secondly, everything begins to go off kilter as we get old, as we know. We have ways of repairing DNA damage. There's special enzymes that can fix a mutation, they begin to work less well as you get old. So therefore you see an increased mutation rate as we age for those. Those are the main reasons. And that's, again, the basis for this is genetic. You see the genetic differences uh, form the basis. That's why age is a risk factor for cancer. In mo- most people may well develop a tumour at some point in their life. Now, the good, you want to hear the good news now? Yeah. The best news ever for cancer, I'm not joking, you're by a country mile, right? is a new treatment for cancer that wakes up the immune system, okay? There's a treatment now, you can get it in Ireland, it's called ipilimumab, is one of these drugs, right? That wakes up the immune system to kill the tumour, okay? And this is the biggest breakthrough in and cancer when, therapy for 50 years. When did years. this start? When did this become available? There's a great story here as well, by Please. the way. Please. Oh, that was a great story. We're on a, we're on a podcast. Now, um, I, I, work on, I work on inflammatory diseases, is my air, like arthritis and so on. I know all the cancer guys, never liked them for some reason. They were always so up their own asses. We work on cancer. It's very, you know? yeah. And I'm going, well, what are you talking Oh, yeah, we, we're, you know, we're going to save him dying. You're just going to swallow a knee. Forget that's boring. So it was awful. You know? and, and now we liked them as well. They were always radical, by the way. The, best, the most weirdest people in immunology were immuno-oncologists. And they'd be little, little groups and meetings. Nobody talks to them. You know? One of them, a guy called Jim Allison, who I knew for years, played harmonica with the Grateful Dead. There's a little fact for wow. you now. Yeah. I, that impressed me more than the fact that he won the Nobel. He won the Nobel Prize last year. Forget that, <laughs> Jim. It's the harmonica I'm after. Anyway, he, was a, he wouldn't go to Harvard. He hated all the Harvard types, the Yales. They're all assholes. He worked in Texas mainly because he couldn't stand all those East Coast pompous people. Got a job at MD Anderson and kept banging on this drum. If, 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 we, if we get the immune system active, we'll fight cancer, right? And what he said was the immune system has brakes as well as accelerators. 
right? So when you, mm-hmm. like those most machines, when you get infected, the accelerator works, the brake eventually comes on. He said tumors are very cunning. They apply the brake on the immune system. Mm-hmm. If we block that brake, it's called a checkpoint, by the way, is the other name, like a barrier comes down, block the brake, and now the accelerator will work and will kill the tumor. He shows this in mice, first of all, nobody believed him. I'm not joking, at conferences, they laugh at him, this can't work, you know? Finally, proven to be correct, he discovers the drug Ipilimumab. It is a trial in melanoma patients. It's a 70% response to the lethal type of cancer. Wow. It's now in long ovarian. Another guy in Japan called Hanjo, who's his mate, gets another drug similar to his one. Absolutely amazing data coming out now. There's a 50% response right now in lung cancer with checkpoint inhibitors. So in other words, oh. we're now seeing for the first time. And, we're not, the, the, and, and we talk in the last five business. years? The last oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was approved about four or five years ago. Fuck. But what's amazing is this medical research game, and I, I'm drawn into commenting occasionally about it. They come in on a spoof. Oh, yeah, we've got a cure for this, a cure for that. This is true. This is really working, you know. And the prediction is it'll get better. Now, some don't respond. That's and what, what are we seeing statistically? What, what difference are we seeing statistically? The projection is going to be huge. They're, they're predicting already. There, there are people now at melanoma who should have been dead two years ago, still alive for instance, you know, and so we're going to see more and more use of these drugs, I suppose. And in Ireland, they're expensive is the problem, remember. That's the next question yeah, we might ask. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, they're not cheap, but, but the truth is the data what if you're better poor? What if you're poor in Ireland? That's the big... I think the HSC has taken IPI on. I think they're... Because, yeah, the, they isn't anyway, it how it works? Is someone, like... If you have HIV today, there's a drug you can take... Uh, not is it prep? Or? Yeah, yeah, the prophylactic one. Yeah, that, the, but the yeah. one that you can take if you have it. Oh yeah, that's right. The reverse transcription. There's a, a drug ones. that you can take if you have HIV today, which means you cannot infect another person. And people are living today with HIV, and it's it, it's almost like having asthma. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's right. It, it's because uh, I had uh, Will Saint Leger and, and Tony Walsh from ACT UP, the uh, HIV organisation in Ireland, talking about it. And they were trying to get... And finally Access this year, it, it was yeah. brought in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. People with HIV, the government will pay for this drug. Yeah, that yeah. means they can't infect. Now, what they can't pay for is... There's a drug called PrEP. And PrEP is, if you don't have HIV, but your partner does, if you take PrEP, you can't get it. It's, yep. it's incredible. What they, what's happened with HIV recently and the drugs is amazing. Yep. People can yep. have HIV and they can live really healthy, normal lives as if you had asthma or maybe diabetes. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. um, but is the cost, yeah, and who's going to pay? And this is yeah, going to happen so, all the time now, by the way. New uh, drugs are going to be out every week almost. You'll see another new drug being launched, kind of. But, uh, Who will pay for them? You will know, the so. HSE pay for this drug? Like, well, how much ha- is it if you don't... If, how much is it to actually buy if you get cancer to get it privately? I don't know, but it's not cheap. Th- tens of thousands, these. Oh. Drugs often cost, you know, and and, and yeah. the checkpoint ones they're costing 80, 90 grand, say a year. Now, this is stopping you of dying from cancer, remember? But, but you know? is the so, look, is, is the price justified, or is it just some Yank pharmaceutical company taking the yes? Yeah. Well, that's the big question again. So, so the Yank drug company, who I work for, by the way, uh. <laughs> They would say, we're giving this stuff away for free. Not. No. Yeah. They, it, it costs $1.2 billion to make a new drug. That's yeah. the cost, right? Many fail, remember. So mm-hmm. it's a very high-cost business to be in, first of all. And the drug companies make money. They're a business like anywhere else. You know? But they're very aware of this problem. And if you, you know, uh, you'll see them discuss it in various ways. They want patients to get... The whole reason I'm doing this is patients to get access to the drugs, for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how are we going to pay for it? Health governments will have to pay for this, by the way. Yeah. But the HSE took on the cystic fibrosis. So that was a big success yeah. this, last year. That's a very expensive drug, but it really works in cystic fibrosis. And now the HSE have taken it on. So, so we'll see more of it. It's a big issue for governments, though. 
a big part of their budget will go towards new medicines, it must be say. They, they'll do deals with drug companies, I guess, they get the, but that, that statistic forever, they got the price down a bit, you know. Yeah. So it's a dialogue that's happening, you see. But you can't have a situation where there's a drug that stops cancer and people can't get access to it. That's outrageous. Now, now it's, it, it happens anyway with the, in the developing world, they can't get access yeah. to normal drugs, you know. Yeah. But that's a big issue that we need to confront the whole time, and it will become more and more of an issue, I think, as, 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 as these new medicines become available. You know? And do you think, is it becoming more and more of an issue because science is advancing to the point that just better discoveries are happening more often? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's the best thing about immunology. When I began immunology all those years ago, we knew maybe this much, right? But <laughs> That's the scale. We now know a kilometre high. The knowledge wow. base is massive because of tens of thousands of people in Trinity and UCD and UCC. We're all part of the adventure, you know? What, this what knowledge acquisition been, is amazing. What has been that catalyst? Do you think, has the internet played a part? Has computers? Huge. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Information transmission speeded up. So... And the technology you got to do the experiments in the labs, the, the, the equipment we have is much more elaborate as well. So all that technology has helped to, to, to advance this really fast. So one thing I want to know about, and this is where we get on to kind of ethics. Um, I don't know if you remember, I, I did a podcast about six months ago, and what I was investigating was, um, do you know like uh, DNA companies like 23andMe and History.com, where like you spit into an envelope and you send it off and it'll tell you what your genes are. Well, I was looking into it, and like a DNA test should cost a thousand euro, right? For any one of us to get your DNA tested to find out what it is, should cost a thousand euro. But yes, twenty three and Me and History dot com are able to charge a hundred euro. So you're left going, "Where's the nine hundred quid, lads? Are you giving me shit for free?" They're not. What's happening is, when you get a twenty three and Me test, they have they own your genetic data. You're signing off the data of your genes you're given to the company, and they have it. Glacko, Smithco, Klein, who make Lemsip, bought for 300 million all the genetic data of anyone who's used 23andMe to develop pharmaceuticals. This is a thing that's happening. People aren't really aware of it, and what I'd like to ask you, Luke, is it sounds unreal because you're going, wow, I have the DNA of hundreds of thousands yeah, of people yeah. but then there's the ethics of what fucking happens with that Absolutely. data yeah, then yeah, yeah. there's two aspects to this and, and a conflict of interest I've done stuff with GSK so I've, I've worked for them they gave 300 million to 23 I mean, they got 10 million different people's DNA they have yeah. access to right and I was there recently and, and, and they said to me there's a terrible disease called lupus that afflicts people it's an awful immune disease mm-hmm. I think something like 200,000 of those 10 million have lupus because they fit in a, a, redic- a medical record and now they can see what genes Mm-hmm. are different in those, all those people and now find a treatment for that disease. So it's extremely powerful. In fact, the future is this, I think in some ways, for medicine. That massive number of people, all the diseases mapped and now we know what's going wrong and then can design drugs to, 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 against those things, right? And that's all good. And, and, is, that and you really do tick new? A box. is that really new? It's been going on for about 10 years now or more, okay. maybe. But you tick a box. If, when you give your spit, you see, you tick a box that says you can use my DNA for medical yes. research. And this now, is why it's 100 quid. Yeah, and your, your hope is, of course, that a patient might benefit, maybe someone in your family yeah. might have lupus or whatever it is. That's the, tr- that's the deal you're doing with them, in a way. If the price of the drug is low enough when, it, when it's on the market, that, that's the bit that's still not clear, let's say. Because so is, is your fear, Luke, that, yes, this, it's amazing now that research has access to this DNA yep. and great things can happen, but with these, uh, the results that come from it, it can be exclusionary based on the price. Absolutely, that's the big fear. But the other fear I have as well, Luke, is 
whatever about using the genetic data to give to pharmaceutical companies to improve medicine, there's also uh, governments, oppressive, not even oppressive governments, every government, they want to know what our DNA is for tracking us, for... uh, you want to say like uh, improving um, policing to solve murders to have everyone's DNA, but you look at what's happening in in China at the moment. You know what I mean? They want every facet of our data. They want our behaviour through how we use our phones, and now they want our actual fucking skin and, yeah. and our DNA. And also, as well, what troubles me is if they have everyone's DNA, the, the ability to make like designer babies and shit like yeah. that. The the ability to get into someone's genes, eradicate the possibility for a disease, but then only very wealthy people have yeah, an access to yeah. that. So rich and poor now is no longer about class. It's about the rich people don't get this, e- this disease yeah, and the poor yeah. people do. That's right. That's, the, that's always the fear, by the way, that it's the elite get access to the technology, remember, and that begins. And that, now the mean, hope, of course, do you think that's going to happen? Like, are the UN or whoever looking at that? They are. Going, look, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, this is the, the World Health Organization are the key governing yeah, body. Yeah. They're looking at this closely now and wondering what's going to happen and can we regulate it and can we make sure these very things you're raising don't happen? And DNA is a private thing. You don't want anybody yeah. getting access to your DNA, you see. So the 23 and me guarantee that, of course. They say, Look, it's only for this purpose only, which is the hope that that, that must be true. We guess, you know. But the privacy issue is a big one with DNA. Absolutely. Uh, do you know is is our DNA data protected under GDPR? I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Unless D- you sign it anyone? away, of course. You can sign away. You can your sign rights. it away. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and then these forms are very long. What worries me is sometimes these forms are too bloody complicated. People you can't tick, be fucking arsed. Tick boxes anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. one worry. Although one, I, I had my DNA done with Twenty Three and Me. And um, this is about seven, eight years ago. And at that time, they would let you know which famous people you're related to, if there's famous people in the database, okay, and gave consent for this. And I'm waiting for this to come in. Who am I related to? And it was Susan Sarandon. (laughs) Have you heard of her? (laughs) I emailed her. I said, Susan. Will you invite me to the next movie premiere? I'm your cousin from Ireland. You know, whichever, whichever, <laughs> she didn't get back to me, sadly. But, um, and I'm also an O'Neill, I think, because, uh, you know, Niall of the Nine Sausages, as they called him. Actually, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. So, m- most people in this room come from Niall of the Nine Hostages, mm-hmm. don't we? He, because... Hegemony. Oh, Hegemony. What, My what colleague Dan Bradley showed this. So um, many men are carrying the O'Neill marker from the 4th century, and that must be this guy Niall, they reckon, right? And I asked Dan, why is that? Like, why are so many men? It could be one in 18 Irish men are descended from this guy, you know. Uh, some number, the act number is not what it is, but something like that. And he said, oh, yes, he says there was hegemony going on back then. And I said, oh, I said, warlords would have as many babies as they could with all the women in the community or whatever and kill the babies of the rivals at the same time to make sure their DNA passed on. Isn't that ultimate Darwinism in action there? And that could be why the O'Neill gene is, is, is so dominant. You know? Niall was just doing it because he's like, if everyone's related to me, I won't be usurped. Yeah, yeah. But, like, yeah. but, but that's what Lyon was thinking do. of. What was he thinking of? He didn't have a DNA back then, did he? You know, but he wanted yeah. all the people to be descended from him. Genghis Khan is the famous. You know, Genghis Khan. Tens of millions of people from, from Genghis Khan as well. You see, and again, the same thing must have been going on with Genghis Khan. They were obviously full-blown psychopaths. They, they must have been. Yes. But therefore, do you think that? Uh, that means that there's a genetic advantage for psychopathy. Because one in every 100 people is a psychopath. Not every one in 100 people is a murderous psychopath. Yeah, Most yeah. of them end up in business. Yes, yeah. But with that... <laughs> not, I'm not talking out of my hole, lads. That's true. If you look statistically, one in every 100 people is an actual fucking psychopath. But 
only one in every fucking 10,000 or something becomes a murderer depending on the environment they grew up in. The rest of the psychopaths, they end up in fucking business. Yeah. And, and last uh, night I had guests on and one of them was, uh, he used to be a banker during the Celtic Tiger and he had to do aptitude tests throughout his job where they basically try and find out, are you compassionate or are you a prick? And the pricks rise to the top. <laughs> Seriously. Psychopathy in business. Look it up. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing. The, they go the, hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. So I, I often wonder, because you, you kind of go, what's the point in psychopaths? But there is obviously a, a genetic advantage. Yeah, there must be some going, advantage. Precisely. I know what to yeah. do. I'm going to kill everyone's children and fuck their, their wives. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open up the bar now so you can get a little pint and we'll be back out in about 15 minutes, all right? Fair play to you. Um, we were chatting backstage about uh, artificial meat. Yes. You're going to be talking on the TV tomorrow about artificial meat. Yep. Can you tell us, so like the Impossible Burger. Yeah. What the fuck is that? Which you can have in Burger King now. Anybody have one, an Impossible Burger? Did you like it? It tastes the same. It it's, is quite nice. I was having them over in Canada. It, it could be the future. So but the secret there, if you're a biochemist like me, the secret was hemoglobin is a key part of meat, right? Is hemoglobin, when you buy a steak and there's this weird red watery That's shit. That's it. It's yeah. full of hemoglobin. So this biochemist in California extracts hemoglobin from plants. Clover initially have a thing called heme in it. Most plants have this stuff anyway and you could you could make a, a hemoglobin substitute if you will and that gave it the extra edge suddenly then the impossible burger became a reality because having that as an ingredient really helped things helps the flavor the bloody effect with the beetroot juice as well and then they begin making these burgers and of course it's much cheaper than the synthetic ones which they actually grow in a lab or still a bit of a distance away from growing burgers in a lab you know that, that's very expensive still you know but this business of using a meat substitute of sorts has now taken off so. what what is because so the reason thank you very much the, the reason um plant-based burgers are good is because it's like we know that beef has got a terrible environmental yeah. impact like the first off there's the cow's farts but then more important than the cow's farts what could be more important than a cow's fart <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the thing is um meat shouldn't if, if you look at the amount of uh land required to feed one cow and the amount of water required to feed one cow and then the fact that 500 grams of cow costs a fiver, it shouldn't. 500 grams of cow should cost about 30, 40 quid. So therefore, beef is literally unsustainable. But we've managed to create this massive uh, production whereby it somehow is sustainable. It's not. The environment is what's suffering. Yep. So then you think, okay, the Impossible Burger, is it mostly soya? Yeah, there's various things in it that but are vegetable-based, you see, you know, texture actually, and things like that. You but know, can somewhere. they say, if we all of a sudden tomorrow decide to start eating soya, then you have to chop down a lot of trees to grow soya beans, yeah, that's the th which then has an environmental impact. So the challenge, but you're right, but the methane is the big problem. Right? That's a much more powerful greenhouse gas mm -hmm. than carbon dioxide. It's nine times worse than CO2, mm -hmm. you see. So every time you, a, a, a cow belches or farts, methane is in the atmosphere, and that's a big source of methane. So one reason to get, get less cows is to decrease the me methane content in the atmosphere is one reason. But you're right, that's very expensive to make a, a pound of meat full of protein 
as we were. We've been discussing now for the last 43 days, it feels like, outside. But insects, you see. Insects, that's and what I'm And they're extracting in. protein now from insects, a very rich source of protein. Yeah. So again, you can now stop using, I guess, cattle as a source of protein and have different sources, including plant-based and then insect-based. The future may well be more insect-based meat, if you like, than, <laughs> than cattle-based Like meat. Right now, Ireland this year has brought in... Um, the law will say that makes it okay to grow insects for food for animals. We don't have the law yet for food for humans yet, I don't know. There's a company up in Monaghan called Hexafly, and they're basically growing little maggots. And what they want to do is... So if I say, like, what one of the issues with feeding a cow is you need an acre of, of uh, wheat. Instead of getting an acre of wheat you can give the cow some little maggots that you grind up into a rich protein source. That maggot requires fuck all water. The maggot is fed on waste that comes from kitchens, so it's waste that already exists. So now all of a sudden, beef in Ireland, assuming it's been fed a protein-rich meal that's made from insects, is like 40% more environmentally friendly. So, but where we need to be going with it is us as human beings eating insects and... I know it sounds rotten, but like here's part of the problem. First off, if you want, you can go onto Amazon right now and you can buy a kilogram of cricket flour. Like uh, bodybuilders at the moment, uh, cricket protein is the newest thing. And it's just, it's protein that's made from ground up crickets. But you can make, uh, I don't know, get a few soya beans and some kidney beans and mix a lot of cricket uh, protein into it. And you have your own half veggie, half insect burger that has more protein than a beef burger and is environmentally friendly. But... Like, most of the world eats insects. You go to fucking Asia, they eat crickets, they eat grubs, not a bother. It's just a matter of, like, lads, a black pudding. Black pudding's a lot of blood and a pig's arsehole. We already and eat... And it tastes great, right? And it's, it's fucking... Fantastic. I love them! Yeah. Yeah. I'd kill a man for a black pudding. You're, you're not sponsored by Clonic Hilti black pudding, not. obviously. Yeah, cause that, that'd be... But, like, uh, yeah. it's just about us changing our... Ad- I, I'll happily eat uh, crickets, but... The other thing, too, is it's, it's how they present them. Yeah. A, a lot of them, they stir-fry an entire insect. Yeah. But the other thing I'd say to people is, look at the state of lobsters and prawns. They're just insects from the sea. They're horrible-looking bastards. But we'll munch into the rectum of a lobster, not a batter. <laughs> so, but the, the impact on the environment, if we all switched to insects, it'd be fucking phenomenal. And, and, and like I said, w- what the important thing is, you require very little resources to be growing all these insects. Uh, do you know anything about uh, biofuels? Is that something Not as into? much as you. Now, you, you interviewed an expert, didn't you? About, you were telling me earlier about biofuels. So. Yeah. So do you, do you know what biofuels are? So biofuels are... Um, it's, it's basically where you get pre-existing waste, right? So we'll say the brewery industry in Ireland has a load of waste, in, with, with, with barley, we'll say. The cheese industry has loads of waste. Um... The fucking dairy industry and the beef industry has a load of waste. Shit that's decomposing, right? Either be dead cows, uh, unused cheese, fucking plants, anything that decomposes, that creates a problematic amount of carbon that goes into the air and methane, which heats the planet. So biofuels is you grab this shit that's happening anyway... And instead of allowing it into the atmosphere, you digest it in this big fucking tank and you turn that into a fuel that you can put into your car tomorrow without even changing your engine. There's uh, a town in Sweden and their entire public bus network 
runs from biofuel made from the local cheese industry. And that's happening now. So that's one of the things for the future. It's yep. like, um, if we're to look at what, what would the future, what would a ecologically sound society look like? Firstly, there be like, it, it, it's going to be multiple types of power. You're not going to just have electric. You're going to have electric. You're going to have biofuels. There's the smart grid business yep. where you're able to share electricity like with the internet. So you'd have solar, wind, a bit of wave energy, biofuel. Yep. And then a crucial thing is, because this is the shitty thing about, you know, you want to be vegan to save the fucking world. But like, if you're eating fucking avocados, your avocados come from, first off, 70% of the world's avocados are controlled by the Mexican mafia. That's a fact. The Mexican mafia are moving away from drugs into avocados. I swear to fuck. I swear to fuck. Very violent. People are being murdered over Avocado. our desire for avocados. Our desire for quinoa is causing an Irish potato famine style event in Peru and Bolivia because the indigenous people of Peru and Bolivia have had quinoa for a thousand fucking years. All of a sudden, people in Stony Batter get the horn for it. And now... The people in Peru can't afford their own quinoa because they're exporting it all. So there's an environmental impact even when we try and be ethical. So the solution to that then is, is you localise everything. Yeah. Instead of the huge EU... Like the farmers are protesting at the moment. Farmers are protesting because they can't make money from their beef because the European market is so huge that it's not cost-effective. But the way you change that is you, you have it like you had in the fucking the 40s and 50s, like how our grandparents grew up. You buy the cow that lived down the road from you. You eat the cheese that was made down the road from you. And you've got less distance travelled. You've got less yeah. f- uh, fuel used. It's healthy for the biodiversity of the area. So it's, it, you're kind of just... It's asking people to return to what yeah. we've already but, seen before, 60 like, years can, ago. Can you eat the cow if you know its name? Like, let's say the cow That's is, a problem. Here comes Blossom, kill it and eat it. I know. Like, it's a bit sort of... Traumatic for cows are actually fucking lovely and sound when you get when you get to know them, you know. They're very intelligent creatures. I started following a lot of pigs on Instagram too, <laughs> and uh, they've got a lot of empathy, lads. And it makes me <laughs> makes me think twice when I'm drinking their blood and eating their anus, you know, and I, with a hangover. Do you know another fact about cows? I'm glad we we didn't expect to talk about cows, but cows line up with the magnetic field of the Earth. They can sense the magnetic what? field, strangely. Yeah, they're right. Some animals can sense the magnetic field of the Earth. You know, homing pigeons are very good at sensing the magnetic field. They fly home using magnetism in their brains. I can understand why. Cows can line up with the magnetic field for what some unknown the reason. They're herding animals who probably have to travel a, a large amount of distance, so that makes sense. Yep. I got asked a bit. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Bizarre question here and I don't, it's so bizarre I don't know is it, is it relevant or is it true? Can he explain the role of turkey tail mushrooms and the immune system, especially its role in inhabiting some cancers? Turkey tail mushrooms? I've never heard of turkey tail okay, mushrooms. Okay, that it's a silly question. Um, Maybe a species of mushroom, I guess. But um. Um, What about when you're out having a few pints and then your friend says to you, would you like a pint? And then you say, no, I'm on antibiotics. And then they, then they say, sure, that's grand. Should yeah. we have pints and antibiotics? We all need to know this. We do indeed. And the answer is, I don't know. No, I do. Okay. The answer is, um, the reason for, for this is uh, pressure on your liver. So if you take certain drugs, okay. your, liver, your liver is the main place we detoxify drugs. You know, alcohol puts pressure on the liver. A double whammy could damage your liver. So the advice is, if you're on heavy meds of any kind, really, avoid the gargle because it puts pressure on the liver. Because I also heard that's why uh, some people would take two paracetamol before bed to cure a hangover, and it's like, no, paracetamol is dangerous to the liver and you're processing alcohol too. That can be a problem. But a good thing to take ahead of a, after a few drinks is eggs. 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 Eggs are full of an amino acid called cysteine. Any biochemist here about her? And that can make a thing of glutathione in your liver, and that detoxifies alcohol. So there's some evidence eggs help you speed up detoxification. So the, the full Irish base the next morning, basically, with the black pudding, you know. But have the full have Irish the night before. Well. If, if possible, eat the eggs before you go to bed, because that'll help, you know. But in the next morning, have a full Irish. It'll help with the hangover, because it helps metabolise the alcohol is the key thing there. Um... Is autoimmune is, is an autoimmune disease the manifestation of a broken immune system or an overprotective one? Ah, that's a good question to ask. It's overactive for sure. So the immune system goes into overdrive and begins to make all the weapons of mass destruction that it would normally make for an infection, and they cause the inflammation and the, the pain that you normally see. So it's o- overactive immune system war. But there's some defect there that we don't know. Something's broken, obviously, in the immune system to put it into overdrive. Could be genetic. So, for example, rheumatoid arthritis is probably 40% genetic and 60% mm-hmm. environmental. That means you're carrying certain gene variants that predispose you for that particular disease in the immune system, you see. So there's mm-hmm. something going on there that's a bit broken as well. But it's mainly an overactive response. So, uh, another thing, actually, I wouldn't mind asking you about is, and this is the only time I'm going to quote Jordan Peterson, <laughs> um, but uh, 
Jordan Peterson, we're not going to talk about his, his, uh, his politics. One of the strange things about Jordan Peterson is he ha- <clears throat> had some type of chronic pain autoimmune disease. He didn't know what the fuck it was. And it was causing him intense pain. He, couldn't, he was incredibly sick all the time. And then Jordan Peterson switched to a diet of just meat and salt. Only meat and salt. Right. And he says he's symptom-free for two years. Yeah. Similarly, like I said, my friend's mother who has multiple sclerosis, MS was not doing too well, switched to a ketogenic diet, which is basically no carbohydrates or grains, loads of meat and loads of fat. And she now still has MS, but is mobile and not fla- flaring up. Yeah. Is there science behind that? It's tricky that. The dietary bit's been very hard to prove scientifically, really. Will a diet affect MS, for instance? And it's been very hard to show for definite. The issue there is MS goes into remission naturally, and then you have exacerbations. You see, it's okay. a bit random. So she might be so lucky. Could be She's luck. suddenly gone into remission now. But there is some evidence that diet helps, by the way. And the ketogenic diet's a big one. They talk a lot about in cancer, for instance. But again, limited, limited evidence. Absolutely. There's some definite evidence of certain chemicals. Unnat- like tartrazine is a good example. It can bring on an epileptic attack. So, so there, there can be bad things in your diet as well that cause those things. But changing your diet to affect disease is a tricky thing. There's not much evidence. There's some evidence, but, uh, but it's still the jury's out on some of that. Um, but what would you say regarding our diets and the health of our immune system? Yeah. Well, first of all, obesity is obviously enough a very bad thing. Obesity is a real negative. That really irritates your whole body. Your body's full of fat tissue. The immune system can try and react to that and go into overdrive in response to all the fat. So obesity is always a negative. The less weight you carry, the more healthy you will be anyway. You know, and that, that's probably... It's, it's, it's numbers of calories, by the way. In some ways, you're eating more than what you're actually... See, we've evolved to eat everything. Yeah. Humans are omnivores. We will yeah. stuff our faces full of a GNU. Yeah. Why I say GNU, I don't know. I say, find a GNU, you eat it. You know. Yeah. You're in a field, eat all the turnips. You know, that's the way we used yeah. to be. And our bodies can handle that. We can handle a big mix of foods, you see. We're very well adapted to different types of foods. And, and the, in the old days, of course, like back in the Stone Age, you'd gorge, you see. You'd yeah. eat as much as you can get your hands on. And then run for a week to find yeah. the next GNU somewhere. So it was always a case of overeating followed by periods of, of um, kind of, you know, not eating very much and starvation in a way, you know. And that seems to be beneficial. And in fact, Is that evidence. the intermittent fasting? Absolutely. There's good evidence for that now. Intermittent fasting so is good for us, you. So tell us, because that's becoming very popular at the moment. What, yeah. what is intermittent fasting? Who's doing it and why? Well, I'll give you a great example now of this. Are you ready for yet another? How many facts do you people want tonight? This is fact number 79 from the immune system. If you... Uh, starve yourself, your body starts to make things called ketone bodies. Has anybody ever heard of ketone bodies? You begin making this stuff called ketone bodies, and they go to your brain, and they're a fuel source. The brain is greedy for food, obviously. And if you're starving, you need some source of energy, and you make ketone bodies. when you burn burn fat instead of carbohydrates? Absolutely. That's it, precisely. The ketogenic diet actually drives ketones. And there's three or four of them in your body, and guess what they are? Very anti-inflammatory. They suppress inflammation. So it's beneficial, you know. So if you do have intermittent starving, not not to be, you know, starving complete, that's bad. You'll make ketone bodies, and they're a source of fuel, but secondly, they suppress inflammation. And if you have MS or arthritis or whatever it might be, you might see a benefit from these ketone bodies being made. So there's evidence that diet can manipulate the system in a way. Like, I have friends who are ketogenic for, uh, because they want to lose weight. Yeah. And it just, like, literally their breakfast is eight rashers and half yeah. a pint of cream. Yeah. Like, for real. That's their fucking, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Eight rashers, half a pint of cream. 
Then uh, for dinner, it might be three or four steaks and half a block of cheese. Yeah. All this stuff that we're told, don't fucking do that. It'll give you heart disease. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the striking thing is the NIH in America, who are the big oracle that we all go to, they're, they're, they're the world's most famous the research food pyramid institute. They, they, are, they were part of the food pyramid precisely. Yeah. They've assessed every diet ever, okay? The, the Stone Age diet. Remember the Paleolithic diet? You live like yeah. a Stone Age person. The ketogenic diet, the, the Atkins is a famous diet. At- Atkins is almost ketogenic. Yeah. yeah, hardly any evidence any of those work amazingly to lose weight. And if you do lose weight, you put it back on again anyway. But, but it's, it's anecdotal. Like it's every, anecdotal. every single yeah. one of my friends who went ketogenic are just ridiculously thin. Yeah, well, that's the trouble. But if they, if they, they'll switch back quite quickly, you see, and it's unhealthy for them. The one organization, and this isn't a sponsor now tonight, is Weight Watchers, actually. <laughs> they get some credit <coughs> because the type of diets they recommend are good. Uh, there's a social group to support you as you're dieting. So the NIH recommends look at that as most of all. Don't start doing these things yourself because mm-hmm. it may be bad for you, basically. So it's a very interesting part of, of, uh, of the whole dieting issue. Who used and, Weight Watchers? Um, do you know the director, Kevin Smith? He directed Dogman, things like that. He had, a, he had a heart attack there about a year ago that nearly killed him. And he, he went from being about 40 stone down to being about 12 stone using yep. Weight Watchers. Yeah, and yeah now absolutely. He's their, he's their yeah. spokesperson. Um, you are in a cover band with a bunch of doctors. How did you know that? <laughs> Tell us about your cover band that you're in with a lot of doctors. Yes, but, we are the metabolics. Oh, we've got fans here. <laughs> it's, like, it's like saying, we are the Borg, you know. Yes, it's me and me mates, and to get a bit of a release from our day-to-day lives, we play a bit of music and we play covers and all the great crack all together, you know. So our drummer is Brian Murray, who's a neurologist. Our bass player is an intensivist up in James's. Our guitarist is Colm, the famous Colm O'Donnell, Ireland's leading neonatologist in Hollis Street. Right? These guys are great to play with. If you have a heart attack, they can defibrillate with the, the guitar. <laughs> you can get an electric guitar into your heart. Bang, you're okay. So it's great crack all together, Bobby. And we play all, oh, we play lots you of charity gigs. You played in fucking gigs. Fiji. We played in Fiji. Can you believe it? It was the best thing ever. And, and, and I, you know, that was the best trip. And they paid for us to go to Fiji. So you know more than yourself, you get the old corporate gig, right? So, there you go, yeah. <laughs> So, and what um, are you doing next? Are you, you're doing something in... We are going to go to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, get this, because there's a big oncology family. We do stuff for charity, obviously, because we, yeah, we yeah, play yeah. music anyway. We're going to play at a ball, the St. Patrick's Day ball in Dar es Salaam. And all the Irish expats are coming, and we're going to play the Fields of Athenry 58 times. <laughs> That's the plan. Um, but yeah, we're going over to Dar es Salaam for a bit of crack. It'll be great fun. It's wonderful. And remember, music is the best medicine, as these guys tell me. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and we, love, we love it ourselves. When you, as you know yourself, Blimey, when you get a crowd going and they love it. Ah, no, yeah, no, yeah. We play all the covers and we get them dancing. And stuff. Oh, what a thrill for us to see them all enjoying themselves. You know, but our mission, <laughs> one of our missions was, like, imagine a, a Friday night somewhere in Dublin and we play and then the people at the end of a tough week at work and they all join in and it's brilliant. You know, so that's, that's the main function. Proving that music is good for you, I suppose. You know, and there is good um, evidence for that, by the way. Lots of studies have shown music is really good for you. No question for your well, health. Well, uh, didn't the music is shown to be really uh, relevant when it comes to people with Alzheimer's now? Mm. Absolutely. And Alzheimer's, they, they remember those songs from their youth, I suppose. They can sing all the lyrics still, you know, and get great relief from doing that. So absolutely. Like Actually, is, is Alzheimer's something you deal with at all Absolutely. No, that's t- another t- what is Alzheimer's? Tell us. Another immune disease. What's happened really is in the past five or six years, if you're an immunologist, you're in demand, which is always nice. Yeah. Every disease has some immune basis. It's become evidence for this. Like, it used to be arthritis, but now it's Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, a protein, builds up in your brain called beta amyloid. 
in the hippocampus where your memories are, and the immune system tries to clear that, right, to suck it up basically and get rid of it, and goes into overdrive again. It's inflammation of the hippocampus is what Alzheimer's is. So suddenly now we're very interested in manipulating the immune response to target Alzheimer's. That's the disease where we work on a lot. I have a hot take, which is I read that one of the biggest contributors to Alzheimer's is if the person doesn't get enough sleep throughout their life. Yes. And I think us, this fucking generation, are going to present with incredibly high levels of Alzheimer's because we're losing sleep hygiene because of our phones. Absolutely. Like, I literally, I used to get eight hours of sleep, lads. I haven't gotten eight hours of sleep since I got a fucking smartphone. I get between five and six because when I go to bed, I I can't not check Instagram. Absolutely. Before it used to be a book and I'd get eight hours of sleep. That's gone. Yeah, that's very important. In fact, for mental health in teenagers. There's a massive study done last year, and you may be very well aware of this. 14 to 18-year-olds were asked, what's your biggest worry? Now, it used to be getting pregnant or my parents realising I've robbed the gin from the family yeah. drinks cabinet. This is true. This, this is what used to worry teenagers. Now it's anxiety, depression. And okay, the incidence yeah. of that, as you know, is massive. And one reason, no doubt, is sleep disruption. And there was a study showing the average teenager checks their iPhone twice during the night. Okay? Yeah. Now, sleep disruption is a massive risk factor for anxiety, depression. That's been shown for many, many decades. If you disrupt the sleep, is a huge factor here. You know? So that, that's an acute effect. But after, the numbers are studies showing four to five hours a night, that person has a huge risk of Alzheimer's 20, 30 years later. Yeah. And the example is Maggie Thatcher, strangely. They, they use her as the kind of poster. Was four, four she was famous boasting, I got four hours a night, that's yeah. all I need. Massive Alzheimer's as she was older. You know? So there's mm-hmm. evidence to, to connect those two together. And the brain, very interestingly, fact number 93. Are you ready? <laughs> a big mystery in neuroscience is why do we sleep? It's a really dangerous thing to do because maybe you'd be eaten by a tiger. It's very vulnerable. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there must be a biological reason for sleep. If you sleep deprive an animal, now don't do this at home, children. Keep a mouse awake. He dies within three weeks. So sleep is very important for sustaining us. They've cracked what sleep is for. This is about two years ago this began. When you sleep, little vessels in your brain open up. They've shown this now in experiments. And flush out the toxins that build up during the day. During that, your buzzing, your, your neurons. Yeah, are, yeah. You get a byproduct. And beta amyloid is one of them, this protein. And lo and behold, you fall asleep, especially during just the deepest part of sleep. Mm-hmm. These little channels open. They flush your brain out down to your liver and then you clean the brain, okay? Hence, not enough sleep means this stuff builds up. It's like when you put the washing machine on when you go to bed at night, if anybody ever does that. It's a similar kind of thing. You wash your brain as you stay, and that seems to be a major function for sleep and it's very important then to get a... Now, it varies. You might get, some get away with five or six hours and they're yeah. quite happy. The average is like seven and a half, eight hours for most Th- people. That's my fear. Like, I, I can function on five and six. Yeah. Because, I, I, like, to be honest, if, if I didn't have to sleep, I wouldn't. Yeah. I genuinely, I just love being awake all the time. <laughs> If so, but I can happily function and be absolutely grand, but I yeah. am worried about my sleep. I, like, I, I made a fucking New Year's resolution last year that I was going to get eight hours of sleep, and yeah. my plan was is I was going to have the phone on the other side of the room, yeah. and I was going to get an alarm clock. But You can buy a cage. I was, in, I, I, I was in America just before Christmas. You can buy a cage for your phone that has an alarm attached to it. I'm not joking you. I and, fucking... And I you put the phone in the cage, and it won't open till 8 a.m. It's locked in there, you know, so you set it and you can't open it. So this may be the way to get it. But I guarantee you, every single person in this room uh, looks at their phone before they go to sleep, yeah? How many checks during the night? I bet a lot of you wake up, you check it as well. But the worst is even, for me, it's 
So I will not wake up at four in the morning and then actually look at my messages or look at Twitter. I won't do that. But I will look at just to see what the time is. Yeah. But the fucking blue flash. Yeah. You know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at your phone, that just wakes you up. Your brain yeah. thinks you've, it's, it's the morning. Yeah. So it, and you're waking up probably just after REM, which is when you're dreaming. Yeah. You're meant to have a final phase after REM, which you're now being deprived of, you yeah. see, by, by waking up at that point. You know? So it's really important, I think, for people. But I to... saw a study someone did themselves at home, and it fucking freaked me out, where they, they've made a small cut on their hand, like a scrape, right? And on week one, they gave themselves like five hours of sleep a night. And they studied how long it took to heal. Oh, yeah, yeah. They did it again a month later... When they gave themselves eight hours of sleep, the fucking wound healed in half the time. Right, yes. I didn't see That's that. That's terrifying. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. that means that the eight hours of sleep actually healed the fucking wound on the hand. So if yeah. it's a cut on your hand, well, what about the rest of the body? The other idea was, by the way, for an immunologist, that maybe the immune system does its job best when you're asleep, that it repairs... That, that idea was there, and there's some evidence of a circadian rhythm to the immune system, by the way. It's active at certain times in a 24-hour wow. cycle. And at night, it seems to wake up slightly, and then maybe it's repairing you know, the injury. And that's why arthritis people often are in real pain when they wake up. It's quite common, you know, pain when you wake up. And, and that could be because the immune system's been slightly more active during the night. And, and what, what is arthritis? That would be... Any, anything that, that ends in itis, by the way, is, means inflammation, okay? So, so why do I have tinnitus and it's called itis and they don't know what the fuck it is? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay. But tinnitus is inflammation, of whatever in the ear, you know. So any kind of any, so arthritis is arth means your joint, colitis is your colon, meningitis is your meninges, you okay. know. Dermatitis is your skin. So itis means inflammation, and arthritis is inflammation of the joints. Could be knees, wrists, fingers, you know. So and any time there's an inflammation, does that mean the immune system is playing a part? Absolutely, yes, because it goes goes into overdrive. Inflama- if you if you have a little blister on your finger because you've cut yourself, there's a bug in there that's causing inflammation which is the troops coming out, fixing the wound, killing the bugs, and that inflammation is beneficial, you know, because it's helping to the fight. The, the inflammation that all the blood rushes in, for instance, goes red okay. to bring the troops in, you see. And then it goes away and your finger is better. They sometimes call arthritis the wound that never heals. So your joint is now inflamed and never resolves, just keeps burning away in the background. Wow. And that's why the off switches are so important, Blind to figure out what, what's the off switch, because maybe it's an off switch that's defective to turn the thing off. You know? What can people do to... Because I think I'm getting it in one of my hands. What, what what can people do to Is that because of masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. No, it's my left hand. It's my you left hand. You set me up for that joke earlier. We rehearsed that. Because, um, um, playing guitar. I think it's playing, playing guitar. guitar. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 repetitive strain injury is a big yeah. one, by the way. I mean, many people who are violinists, and they, they get arthritis in their hands because re- repeat use causes trauma What can people do to, to reduce the pain of it, to, aside from painkillers? Well, or? the big, I, I began working on rheumatoid arthritis in 1985, so that's probably before that's were born here. At that time, there were awful treatments for rheumatoid. They gave you painkillers like aspirin. They worked yeah. a bit. They gave them gold injections. Can you believe what someone thought fuck? injecting gold yeah, was a thing they used to do? Didn't really work, you know. And, and, and if you were diagnosed with rheumatoid, you were crippled within 15, 20 years. You wow. know, people in wheelchairs, right? Then the big breakthrough happens. And I knew the guy who was in London, a guy called Mark Fellman. He discovers a protein in the rheumatoid joint, which is overproduced, called TNF. Strange name, it's got TNF. And drug companies begin to block TNF, the biggest thing ever, rheumatoid. It is now no longer a disease that cripples you. 
If you block TNF, it slows down the whole disease process. Now, not everybody responds again. It's about a 60-70% response. But certainly, these anti-TNF drugs have revolutionized rheumatoid. And we love that as an example because, you know, where there was almost nothing. And now you have these, there's five anti-TNFs on the market. One's made, they're made in Ireland, blind, but one's made in Sligo. Abvi make one there, for instance, you know. By Westlife. So, yep, that's, that's right. <laughs> so, in fact, all the main anti-arthritis drugs are made in Ireland now, and they're employing all those people. So, but talk about an advance. And then this guy, Fellman, if you, my old boss in Cambridge discovered this as well. And he really inspired me. So, so a group of scientists went after that pathway, if you like. And lo and behold, that was the pathway to target. So there's a really good example of, of an advance, I think. I heard that people in Cork are getting involuntary erections because they make Viagra there. Yes. Is that true? That's true. <laughs> I get one myself every time. I'm so excited to go to Cork. It's been <laughs> No, I'm not sure that's true, but, but the, the, remember in England, I used to live near the Mars factory, the smell Mars bars in yeah, the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So maybe... Maybe the, the smell of Viagra is reminding them of Bonners. Well, well of course, of course, this explains that phrase, up cork. <laughs> that's a well-known joke, and if you're, if you're working on But I, I remember vividly, when I was in London, I did my PhD in pharmacology, which is the science of drugs. There mm-hmm. were people looking for Viagra, not, not looking to treat themselves now. But erectile dysfunction is a serious matter, actually. We don't yeah. laugh at it, but it's quite diabetic get and stuff. They were looking for ways to treat erectile dysfunction. But now it's kinds of things. Like that was a breakthrough. Viagra was big, a breakthrough. Big breakthrough. And People fact, used a... to have to get cock rings. They did. They did. A ring around their mickey. Yeah. That's right. And, and, well, well, before Viagra, one of the treatments was papaverine, which is an extract of pepper, which you would inject into the corpus cavernosa, is the technical term for, you know, that bit. You would get an erection for a whole day. It wouldn't go away, like. It'd be a 24-hour erection. Uh, and I, I met the guy who discovered that, and he wrote a review about this. He said, he said, I injected myself, this is him writing, with papaverine, and I sustained an erection in spite of two worrying phone calls. That's how we put it. <laughs> <laughs> interestingly... Well, luckily, luckily, Viagra came along and did and away with papaverine. Interestingly, in the early days of uh, porn films in the 70s, they, in order, if, if someone was having trouble maintaining an erection, they'd get Tabasco sauce and rub it on their anus. <laughs> Seriously, and that used to keep them up. The fright. Do you Jesus. reckon? Do you reckon it's it's absolutely that there's it extracts in pepper and these spices that promote an erection? But you know how, how Viagra was discovered? Like, it, it, was, it was being invested. A guy called Osheroff discovered it. I've met this guy as well. Right? He was actually trying to make a drug for angina. Or, as my maiden aunt once said, I've got vagina. <laughs> anyway, it was opening blood vessels. The idea of angina is to get constriction of blood vessels. And he was trying to find a drug to open up blood vessels in your heart. He begins a trial, mainly with men for some reason. Often trials are done interestingly with men, not women, which is the peculiar thing. Anyway. Now, that's the thing. is that, that, uh, that's gender there's, a lot of gender, there's a lot of gender critique of it's medicine It's a huge issue today, now, yeah. actually. A huge issue at the moment to do trials yeah. with both men and women. Um, anyway, I gave these men the drug, and then the nurse working for him noticed the men weren't returning the extra tablets. <laughs> so off, often you give a few extra just in case, and they weren't bringing them back. And the nurse, yet again, a woman not getting the credit, as we heard earlier. It was a woman who discovered the AIDS virus. Um, her name was Zanessi. Actually, she worked with Montagnier. Anyway, the nurse spots this and asks the men, why aren't you giving the drugs back? Interesting side effects, this guy said. I've noticed something interesting. And lo and behold... That's it. And, and in fact, it was opening blood vessels, not so much in the heart, it was opening them in the penis. And, and it was totally accidental. He just found a blood vessel relaxer that worked in the penis and not the heart, strangely. You know? And lo and behold, Viagra. Now, Osheroff, that drug made, I think, $1 billion 
in its second year on the market, a huge amount of money. And no man, they thought there was no incidence of this in the, in yeah. the humans, so nobody would admit to it. You know, it opened up a massive market and Pfizer made a fortune. But here's the thing. I know loads of lads who take Viagra. None of them have erectile dysfunction. It's just so they can get a boner while they're on loads of coke. <laughs> Anyone I know who's doing it, why do you have Viagra? Oh, sorry, they, no, 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 I'm just doing a load of coke and I can't get the horn. Or they get speed, Mickey. <laughs> um, a speed, Mickey. Speed, Mickey. Is it called speed, No Mickey, one's doing it? speed anymore. No. No one's do, but in the days when people would do speed, it's been replaced by coke. There would be a, a phenomenon known as speed, Mickey, which is... Uh, do you know like when you've got a really bad flu and it just, you kind of look down at your dick and go, oh my God, I didn't think it could get that small. <laughs> so that, that's what Speed Mickey is. It's when it inverts. <laughs> um, a question was put in by the comedian PJ Gallagher. Oh yeah, we know PJ. And PJ says, uh, <laughs> Luke is the only person I have ever met that has one of those things in his telly to count viewership figures on RTE. That's right. We are a what Nielsen. What the fuck is that? We're the Nielsen family. The Nielsen organisation approached us about four or five years ago. Uh, does anyone have a, a box on their telly? Have no. anybody got one? Maybe that is rare. This is how RTE know how many people view things. That's right. Yeah. It's, there's like 400 boxes in Ireland, and yeah. based on what those 400 boxes watch... That's where they get viewership figures from. This is why Blind Boy's my friend. Will you watch this next week, he says. Cause it'll count well, I was the, thinking, yeah, yeah, I fucking will. I think you're right, though. Because there's not us. that many. Now, my wife said, I think the numbers, you're, like, you represent like 20,000 people or something. You know yeah. what I mean? So if I watch something, it's like 20,000 people. And you've, you've got a thing on your TV, and a little, little handheld, all, as, as, as was, a massively ancient piece of technology, and you press your name, and then your name, and then you're watching that show. You know? And every month, and Nielsen you send us letters. Use it? Do you actually We do. We're very, we're very uh, my son Sam, is, he's very particular. Oh, we've got to push the button down. We've got to be doing this properly, you know? So, you know, it's a funny one. And then every so often they send us little gifts, you know, to thank us and within the Nielsen newsletter. So we are, we're, we have power. Well, how did you get selected? I thought it's a mystery to me. It's a mystery to me. Like, just, how long has it been in the gaff? It's a good few years, five or six years now we've had it in the gaff. And, so, and we're following it dil- diligently to make sure that we represent the Irish people properly, you know? <laughs> now, I'm mainly watching reruns of Friends the whole time. So <laughs> it's not great for... Or she, shall we say? Yeah, but the know? irony is, is that there's some poor prick up on RTE going, oh, we better get a load more friends now. And yeah, it's just because of you. That's how influential I am. Yeah, yeah. um, okay, one thing I want to talk about is, and we haven't gotten onto it, antibiotic resistance. Yeah. And when I was saying earlier about people in Cork getting sympathetic boners from the factory, there is an actual fear of runoff from pharmaceutical companies specifically putting antibiotics into water yep. and this causing all of us yep. to be uh, resistant. Yep. What is antibiotic resistance? And some people are going, fuck it, this could be an apocalypse Absolutely. situation. Yes. Now, is again, that a fear that you have? And again, you've got massive consensus on this. It's always, see, scientists often disagree with each other, by the way. You know, we love disputation and we love being criticised. Honestly, we do. Because you always challenge the guy. What, show me the evidence. You know, I don't believe in that experiment. I've got my own. You know, and we disagree a lot. And then you get to the truth eventually. So when you see a consensus around something among scientists, like, this must be true. Because they're, they're, you know, they're hard asses, basically. Massive consensus about two things now. One is the anti-vaxxers are wrong. No question about that. Yeah. That's for definite, right? There's no question about that. And the second one is there are bugs emerging that resist antibiotics. Now, if that becomes a reality, and it is a big fear, you go back to the dark ages, which means people die of diphtheria, 
They die of cholera. They die of all these infections again. And our, our, these, our, our are grandparents these new would, versions of bugs that already exist. They've mutated to dodge, so dodge the bullet, you see. What have you seen? What has the science community seen? Well, one example is TB. Now, TB was the scourge of Ireland. Yeah. Uh, our great-grandparents yeah. would remember this as a horrifying disease. Yeah. You know, and awful, especially in Limerick. Actually, to be honest, Limerick my was dad a, a had famous my place. Dad had yeah. My dad had it. My mother's mad died from it. So that's, and, yeah. and it was a disease of poverty, mainly, actually. Yeah. It was poverty. So, again, antibiotics kill TB. It's brilliant. Now, in India and places, we're seeing emergence. Now, the reason why this happens is overuse of antibiotics because now some of them can mutate. You know, there's pressure on yeah. them because of the antibiotics and they can dodge it and now they begin to become resistant or indeed run off. Absolutely. Oh, there's yeah. more antibiotics. If you take a sample of the Liffey, mm-hmm. you'll find antibiotics in the Liffey water, you know, so, and that's mainly agricultural use. That's a big fear there. Yeah. So now we're seeing this emergence of these resistant strains. Now, the second thing is can drug companies keep up with this and make new ones, you see. And many of them aren't because there's no money in it and they're reluctant. But more and more drug companies are now switching to this because they're frightened as well. And they will be, hopefully, will stay ahead of the, the curve here in a way, you know. And then, like, the Welcome Trust in London is the biggest charity, actually, Biomedical. They're investing in this as well. So it's a real fear and we're trying to make sure that uh, we can dodge it. But one, one answer is don't use as many, you know. Obviously, overuse is a yeah. factor here. Like, uh, and that will help. We're all young people in the room. Like, I mean, we shouldn't be taking antibiotics for a sore throat and things like that if we're otherwise healthy. Well, they are wonder drugs, but there's no question. If you go to your GP and they give you one, as I said earlier, it's good, you know, because without these people die, you know, and there was massive... The main cause of death 100 years ago was infections, and that was <laughs> cracked by antibiotics. So, so they're a mo- very powerful drug. But, but again, they get, they get overused, I suppose, and then the downside is resistance. This is just anecdotal now, but we'll say last year... So I was doing grand for a couple of years with... Uh, if I was getting a sore throat or I was getting a chest infection, I was fighting it off myself and I was fine. Last year... Um, because I was under so much fucking pressure from work, I couldn't afford a sore throat, right? So I went to the doctor. He was like, you don't need antibiotics. I said, give me the fucking antibiotics. He said, grand. Took them. I've had, I had the worst year of continual sore throat, continual chest infections. <laughs> so the inverse. And the ear. But it, it is... Did I weaken my immune system by that dose of antibiotics? I don't now, know. This yeah. year I'm grand. What yeah. I'm doing this year is, and it's bizarrely working, anytime I feel a sore throat... I take turmeric, ginger, and orange juice, and I'm grand. Yes, yeah. Well, it the, works. I don't know why. Well, as I said, by the way, we have great immune systems, you know. They're very sophisticated. We should be able to fight infections anyway, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're run down or, as we said earlier, stressed. That, that has a negative effect. Or if you hammer the head out of your body, remember. I mean, you know, alcoholics get infections all yeah, the time, yeah. you know, because you're beating up your immune system there. Yeah. You know? But normally, if you have a re- reasonably healthy life, you know, and take a bit of exercise, the usual things, your immune system will work and will fight the infection. If you get an infection, though, go to see your doctor, definitely. Of course, yeah. Because then these antibiotics will help and there'll be a way to treat the infection, you see. And, and we know if you don't do that, what happened 100 years ago, people died, you know, especially children, by the way, mm-hmm. very important. So, so these things work, you know, they're a great advance. But again, a bit of caution in terms of overuse is a negative, I guess, is the way to think of it. Um, can you talk about, we said, the history of new diseases that emerged when Europe met America? Yes. In the 14th century. Well, it went badly for the Native Americans is the first course, problem, yeah. because we brought diseases over to them. And smallpox massively wiped out many Native yeah. Americans. There was no smallpox in North America. They reckoned very little anyway. Mm-hmm. And there was a naive population, never before exposed, you know, died in their droves of smallpox. It's incredible. And, of course, what did, what, what did the Europeans? It's great. You know, they get, but they gave, us, them all. they gave us syphilis. They did indeed. Absolutely. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up now. Uh, let's move on to STDs. Always mm-hmm. a cheery topic. 
a horrible disease, syphilis. Again, antibiotics work in syphilis. It's wonderful, yeah, why? remember. Yeah, syphilis, like, have you ever seen photographs of people with advanced syphilis 100 years ago? Yeah, tertiary They syphilis. literally look like zombies. It would, it would cause your entire face to fall off, like terrifying yeah. stuff. Yeah. And this was 100 years ago. Yeah. Why is that not happening anymore? Well, again, antibiotics, you see. If, if, you're, if you go to a clinic with an STD, always go to the clinic, remember? Yeah. They and give important, you- this is a very important thing, a lot of lads I know won't go to the clinic because they're of the impression that they get a cocktail umbrella and stick it down your cock. That's 2002 shit. That's fucking 9-11 shit. But blind boy, you can that, pay extra for can, that. You can piss into a cup now. They don't That's do right. that thing yep. anymore where they put a swab down your dick. Yep. So... Don't be afraid of that. You've got to go because cup. you might spread it, you see, as well, remember. Absolutely. So that's, that's go. yeah. And then these antibiotics work great for syphilis. Yeah. There's a worry about gonorrhea. So there's a strain emerging. A hor- these were horrible diseases. Where now, is gonorrhea emerging as a antibiotic resistance? In the developing world, mainly, is where these resistant strains are, are emerging. Partly because of lack of treatment strains. So if one emerges there and it isn't treated, then, you know, then it you're in spreads. trouble or whatever. In other ways, so yeah. it begins to spread, yeah. So that's, that's one place. But it is Amer- in North America, there's a fear of gonorrhea. The, the incidence is going up. And they're having more trouble. There's a range of antibiotics. You see, a doctor can try a whole set of them and try to find one that works. And finally gets one that works. You know, they found ones which don't work for gonorrhea. You know, and that's a worry because that might now begin to dominate. And, and what, because again, gonorrhea is one of these ones that someone gets it and they're grand. Yeah. What's gonorrhea like if you don't treat it? Like what, what happens to you? It can kill you. It can be, it, really? You can get sepsis from gonorrhea. You can go into overdriving. Now, most people, again, will get over it after a period of yeah, illness, yeah. you know, but, if, but at its worst case, it's, it's, it's lethal, you know, so again, you've got to be very careful. The big, the big fear of all infections is a thing called sepsis. Where you get an absolute infection all over your body, your blood is now is that infected. What sepsis is? Sepsis, that's what sepsis is, and and the whole body becomes massively inflamed. That sounds like no crack. Because now that's no crack at all, and you get liver, kidney failure. Does and sepsis happen in in the developed world? Absolutely, yes, yeah. You know, in hospitals, MRSA is kills tetanus? people. Is that tetanus? Is tetanus? No, tetanus is that's 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 a different thing. Okay. But sepsis, any bacteria, if it goes into your bloodstream, becomes dangerous. Because it goes everywhere. Your immune system's in your bloodstream, and it goes into overdrive. And now your whole body, effectively your liver and your kidney, becomes really inflamed, and your blood pressure drops. And it kills, even now in Irish hospitals, sepsis and is the is, cause of these... Is sepsis what happens when... Like, could you have a sore throat and yep. that's untreated and then that gets into your blood? Absolutely. Bloodstream? Any infection of bacteria can turn into, mainly a bacteria, can have a How do you stop sepsis. that happening and who's at risk? Well, this is one thing I work on a lot in my lab, to be honest. We've got a big interest in arthritis, but we also work on sepsis a lot. So, so about 20 years ago, a guy in the US discovers what part of the immune system is activated during sepsis. He discovers the on switch and he wins the Nobel Prize. His name is Bruce Boitler. Uh, and he wins a Nobel Prize, I think it was 2012, for that discovery. So we now knew what was being flipped during mm-hmm. sepsis. And now drug companies want to try and block that in various ways and mm-hmm. limit that response. You know? But it's a mystery. By the way. So some people, young people especially, they're in hospital, they've got a regular infection. And for some reason, that goes into overdrive and begins to get a foothold. And, begins, and once it starts to roll, it's very hard to stop. And, of course, the doctors are devastated. They want to try and stop this, you know, and treat them in various ways. And it's kind of relentless, you know. And it's a big effort. They've spent billions on trying to stop sepsis. It kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. Like, it's a huge thing. And they still haven't got there yet. There's many trials have failed. There's big disappointment in sepsis over the years, you know. So it's been a tricky one. But, again, it's an important one because so many people die of it. Um, one person asked, uh, are we any cu- uh, closer to curing herpes? This conversation never gets any easier. Herpes. Yeah. Yeah. That always comes up, I've noticed. <laughs> well, of course, it depends on what type of herpes, doesn't it? You know, you know remember the old lip uh, stuff? Remember yeah. you get a cold sore? Yeah. Herpes is a type of cold sore. That, there's different types of herpes viruses. Yeah. That one, 
great breakthrough. Now, when I was a kid, there was no treatment for cold sores. You know, you just grew and it was awful. Now, a little drug blocks the virus in the lesion and stops it dividing. You know, you can buy it in the pharmacy very cheap now, you know. The other types of herpes... I'm not going to give the trade name, um, but it, there's a few of them on sale for her. You know, have you never, never had a cold sore? Ah, yeah, okay, so like cold sore treatment. Cold sore treatment, ah, right, yeah, okay, precisely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, the other types, though, are more difficult, the ones, the ones that um, cause herpes in your genitals. So. Yeah. Gen- genital herpes, as it's called. That's a bit trickier to treat still. But again, that'll be self-resolving often. But, These things go yeah, away. But is, is herpes not like you have it and that's it, you're fucked for the no, rest of your life? The problem is it goes latent. Now, there's a cunning virus for you. It lives in your neurons, in your skin, in your body. It lives there latent and then comes alive at certain times and stress brings it out by the way you know the, the one that yeah. causes herpes simplex stress means the thing now wakes up and now infects your your mouth or your, your lips. So, so a person who has a genital herpes can like go 10 years with nothing yeah. and then it flares up flares up yeah and the flare up can be because of stress and does example, that person then have to never have unprotected sex again I've got to be careful precisely yeah. and it goes latent again then by the way you know so it goes in and out of latency is with herpes but um, uh, again bringing it back to early porn you <laughs> Look at a couple of early porn films and you see some interesting things around people's arses. Yeah. I'm doing this as part of a research for the podcast, lads. There's going to be a podcast in two weeks where I found a a really, really, really important early disco producer who was so underground that the only way he got his music out there was through porn films. So that's why I'm doing this, looking at all the 60s and 70s porn. We can use this. And and noticing, is that herpes on that man's arse? I'm very happy we can use these educational tools now, can't we? Let the students look at this early porn. They can see what's going on. Yeah, but banging soundtracks. (laughs) Um... What about uh, when people take things like echinacea? And oh, yeah. Mm. Is, is that bullshit? Is it fucking... There's evidence for that. That's one of the good things. So the trouble with this is, if you go into a health food shop, right, an awful lot of stuff that's on sale, there isn't much evidence behind them. Sadly. Like, when you're in Holland and Barrett, like, anything in Holland and Barrett, you buy it, and at the back of it, it says, this doesn't actually do what we say it does, but you can take it if you want. Everything there. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's right. It's like kind of, kind of a... You know, they worry that they're going to get sued, I suppose. But most of those things is anecdotal evidence, maybe, you know. But remember, many drugs came from plants. Aspirin is a good yeah. example. But that came from willow bark, you know. So there's, yeah. there's a history of plants doing stuff. And of course, the ancient people only had plants. And if you go, if you go back 500 years, like in Trinity, when our medical school was founded, it was, it was 1711. All they had were plant extracts. There was no drugs and there was a botany part of the medical school you know so, so plant extracts do work to some extent you see but me, there's no evidence for many of them sadly right mm-hmm. the second my, the, when i began my phd my first project in london was on fever few now fever few is a herbal remedy uh, through antiquity for migraine for it. my job was can you find the active ingredient in fever few and i spent three or four months on this got nowhere and i said feck this for a game of soldiers i'm not going to work on this anymore but one thing we found was we took 10 samples of fever few from health food shops. Not a single one had fever few in them, you know? Okay. So you're worried about the regulation of these things. That's, a, that's one negative aspect. But echinacea, let's get back to it. There were loads of studies on that, actually, and that good evidence. And there's some evidence that it's, it decreases the time with the cold. So it won't prevent it. But if you feel a cold coming on and you take some echinacea, instead of the cold lasting for, say, four days, it might last for two. So there's some evidence for that, they reckon, at the moment. And that's the recommendation. But it won't stop you getting a cold. Are you looking into uh, cannabis at all in any of the work you do? Absolutely. Every day I smoke. No, I don't. Um, (laughs) That is a wonder thing. 
I'm not tell just us saying about that. that. No, 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 There's dangers. Let's not be too careful here. But do cannabis. what you fucking want. You're adults. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cannabis was banned for racist reasons in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. So it was called cannabis in North America, and then the Mexicans began arriving. They called it marijuana, mm-hmm. which means Mary Jane. They, they, they just called it a woman's name. And they began banning it to torment the Mexican workers. That was the reason mm-hmm. why it got banned as a racist thing initially. There was never any evidence that cannabis was really dangerous as such. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's dangerous. The, 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 the stronger stuff is dangerous. Yeah. There's no question about that. For the brain. The, second, only, the only other concern we have is in the teenage brain, it can mm-hmm. be problematic because that's still getting wired. Mm-hmm. Any drug in a teenage brain has to be seen as bad because it changes the wiring. And that can last for life. So they're the only fears. Everything else, if you're an adult, and it's legal now, I think, in, is it 14 states in North America? California, man. I was always like walking into a cheese shop. <laughs> li- li- but literally saying to them, I want to feel like this, this, and this. And they yeah. go, there you go, that's a fiver. Yeah. I'm angry Absolutely. about it. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. And, 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 and blind boy, the, it's a good, why, why, Americans are so up their own tight asses, aren't they? How can we get legal there first? I've asked people this. There's two reasons. One is black the black community were being discriminated against. Yeah. It was three strikes and you're out in America. If you were yeah. caught a third time of cannabis, you went to a lifetime jail. Yeah. And liberals in America, now we can't have this, it's un- unfair against the black community. That was one reason. Yeah. They could tax it was the second. They're making a fortune off cannabis now. It's taxed. They're making it's a fortune, but you can't use a credit card because oh, that right? the yeah. cannabis, so the, the, the dispensaries are legal on a state level, but it's still il- illegal on a federal level. Right. So yeah. they have difficulty bringing their cash to federal banks. Ah, okay. So all yeah. the cannabis yeah. companies are left with massive amounts of cash. You uh, can't pay with a card. Right. A bill has gone through Congress in November, by yeah. the way. They're about to legalise it federally. It may become yeah, legal. Federally. But, but the thing about it is, very interesting, is the first ever drug. Are you ready for what fact are we on now? The first ever drug in history is a hieroglyph from ancient Egypt of a guy taking cannabis for eye inflammation and hemorrhoids. Those were the two, two, so it, was, it was known to be anti-inflammatory by ancient people for a long time. It was called hemp in those days. And I wonder, what's, what's the hieroglyph? Is it a guy with a bong? You'd wonder what the Egyptians were doing. But they were taking cannabis anyway way back in ancient times. It was known to be very anti-inflammatory, right? And then we eventually purify from cannabis what the active ingredients are. They're called cannabinoids. And these are potent anti-inflammatory molecules. And you could see them now being developed. There's companies now developing them and the purified stuff, you know. Now, other people realized it was very good for stopping muscle spasm. It was a really beneficial of MS patients, actually, yeah. were the first to go after this. And it works on muscle spasm. It works on epilepsy in children. Not, not the weed itself, but extracts. Mm-hmm. So we now know an awful lot more about the chemistry of what's in cannabis. The only, the only psychedelic or psychoactive part is THC. That's the one cannabinoid that gives you the, the euphoric effect. Yeah. The other cannabinoids don't have that effect as much. So a lot, of go, a lot going on there, I think. And, it, and I think in my view, it's only a matter of time before it's legal everywhere. Let, let me give you one more fact on this. So you know the case to legalize drugs is being debated. In my, in my next book, by the way, I'm plugging it Oh, you have a book coming out, yeah. I mean, I'm writing it at the moment. Mm. I've got a chapter on the science behind why drugs should be legal. Now, now it's the lesser of two evils kind of argument in truth. But there's many people advocating now. Now, one argument is this. If they made drugs legal in America, one third of crime would go away immediately. It's yeah. connected to, that's a big one benefit. Secondly, the, the DEA in America, it costs $50 billion a year to run the Drug Enforcement Agency. $50 billion. Mm-hmm. They make no difference. It's, it's, it's rampant. If they taxed it, they'd make $50 billion. There'd be a yeah. net gain of 100 to invest in harm reduction anyway, and addiction yeah. programs and so on. So there's lots of cases now to look at this more closely, I think. And if you want to see it working, just look at Portugal. 
Portugal since Absolutely. fucking they, they, the year right. 2000. Yep. They have barely any deaths yep. from uh, heroin because they have safe injection. Yep. Heroin isn't even criminalised if you're a user. No one goes to jail. What they do is they'll offer you treatment and they don't yep. have deaths from heroin. That's right. In Ireland, we have deaths from fucking heroin. I mean, thank fuck they're after opening up an injection or they will be opening up an injection centre in Dublin. But yep. they look at it as a health problem yep. and not a crime Absolutely. problem. Absolutely, yep. I'm going to open up the questions to the audience now. Uh, if anyone has a question, it can be about absolutely anything. Any questions? Um, Hold on, we give you the mic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, would the tumours caused from neurofibromatosis be the same as cancer tumours? Yes, that's a type of cancer. Absolutely, it yes. similar. It's similar. Yeah, it's an overgrowth. So, so what is the name of that, so, Luke? I didn't hear. Neurofibromatosis. It. Okay. So any kind of t- well, the trouble is, there's two types of tumors in a way. One that are benign, and some are malignant. You know, the malignant ones will spread into your liver and your kidney and kill you. Neurofibromatosis doesn't, but it just grows so big it causes all the symptoms. You know, so there's the similarities between those two. It wouldn't be classified as cancer, I don't think, as such, but it's got it's got similar features. Any other questions over here? Hold on, we give you the mic, brother. How would you convince a staunch anti-vaxxer that they're wrong? Oh, oh yes. Good question, brother. That's a, great, that's a really important... I'm glad you've asked. That's like a plant. Um, that's, a great, that's a really important question. We worry about this. The whole, if you're an immunologist, you see, this really worries you because our job is to develop new vaccines and so on. It's very difficult and very complicated, actually. There's all kinds of reasons why people say, I don't want to vaccinate my child. So the first thing is to accept that, that some parents are reluctant. They don't want to bring a little healthy baby into a doctor with a needle, you know, and they're slightly reluctant. So you've got to accept that that's the way it's going to be, right? And then you've got to use just reason as best you can and give the evidence. And, and the evidence I give is really clear-cut. I mean, in 1964... 63, if I can find 63, they, they, there was no measles vaccine in America. 500,000 children got measles that year. One in three had serious complications. Tens of thousands went deaf because of the measles, right? The vaccine program began. Two years later, 61 cases in America. That's the power of vaccines, you know. And you give someone that argument and you say, okay, there's a risk of your child having a reaction, of course. It's very rare because it's extremely rare to see a reaction. It does happen. You just accept that. It is, you know, reality. But it's very, very rare. The chance of your child picking up measles or any of these diseases is much higher and will cause serious damage to your child. So the question is, do you want to protect your child? The other thing we... They used to say things like, oh, all the experts say it's great. You know, so the World Health Organization and all the doctors. Some people didn't like to hear that and didn't know, oh, I don't trust those experts. Yeah. You know, it was kind of a, an anti-expert thing. So that doesn't really work, you know. And in America now, they give the GPs, they're called family doctors there, what to say to patients, you know, or parents, just really sort of to win them over. This is very amusing. Tone of voice is everything. It turns out, you know gentleness and just just a bit of an awareness of it and, and those are the things people are doing so um but for, for me it, reasonable people can look at the evidence and accept vaccination has to be absolutely you know essential for many people the second thing that we tell people is okay you mightn't want to vaccinate your child because you worry the child will be harmed but if the uh, rate of infection goes below a certain percent in, in the community so for example if 95 percent of people if 5% are infected with measles out of 95, that's enough to spread, right? 
older people and babies, and they die of measles, you know? So in other words, you need this called herd immunity. You must get over 95% vaccination to stop old people and babies dying of measles. So it's not just about you then, it's about, it's about other people as yeah. well. You're harming others then by not vaccinating your child. And those are the arguments we use. Now, they, are they working is the question. There's still a rate of vaccine denial going on, you know, and, that, and it hasn't really changed in the past couple of years. So maybe we need other ways to do it. But, but these are the current ways that people are trying and, and, Luke, and we're hopeful it'll work, you know. Are, are you seeing, like, on the ground or on the world, the actual impact of the rising anti-vax movement are you seeing people getting yep. sick because of this yeah well measles is the big one the, the incidence of measles for the first time ever has gone over a certain limit in the u.s now and it's beginning in europe as well so parents are not vaccinating against measles because of this fear you know so we will see measles come back now yeah and and the other argument i've heard of other people who, who um remember what it was like there were hospitals in london and dublin just for deaf kids who got deafness because of oh, measles Jesus. And that went away with vaccines, you know. So this kind of thing, you know, you make, you make those arguments. But the, the worry would be measles will come back, and, and that's the number one they're most concerned about because the link to autism, you see, was the thing that yeah. frightened everybody, which is no evidence for that, by the way, at all. Actually, yeah. But that that's frightened like, people. Any anti-vaxxer I speak to, they go, autism, autism, autism. Is there a li- no? Is that bullshit? We never even me- we don't not, not, we don't even mention it nowadays because it might be oh hang on a minute there might be a link you know yeah absolute bullshit it was the worst ever example of a fraud guy Wakefield uh, who claimed this had a paper the other criticism the journal that published it the Lancet what were they thinking of in a way you know so he publishes now he has, his paper comes out now if he, as science wants the truth remember oh this could be true. Everybody tries to reproduce that paper. The Swedes look at babies, you know. I think something like 12 million MMR vaccinated children were looked at and there was no link to autism at all. So they could prove them quite quickly there was no link. And he had then either been economical with the truth or it turns out there's evidence that Wakefield was being paid by lawyers of parents to sue the vaccine manufacturer. That's a massive conflict wow. of interest. So there's, all, there's all these reasons to... To, 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 uh, to conclude that there's nothing in it, you know. But the trouble is, uh, autism is a terrifying condition and no parent wants to risk that on their children. So, yeah. But the evidence, absolutely no evidence of, of a link with autism at all. Any other questions up here? I wonder, have you heard much about Wim Hof? He's a Dutch guy. He uses cold water exposure, breath yes. work and uh, meditation. And he says he can tap into his autoimmune system. And uh, there's been a lot of studies done on Absolutely. him. Absolutely. I think he's an amazing character. Absolutely. Worth no, yeah. that's a great one to ask. Tell us about, about it, because I've heard his name, but I've never Googled him. Well, well it's, it's, it, the broader bit of this is the cold immersion thing, you see. And there's been evidence for that for a long time, actually, anyway. And people didn't really believe it. He was a big advocate of it, you know. And now the evidence is compelling. Again, you can't beat the Scandinavians. They, they study this in great detail. Winter swimmers are very healthy people. You know, they're, they're, is that why the happy pair are fantastically healthy men <laughs> hop into the river every morning or into the ocean well, well talk about a simple thing to do i mean you know you, you, yeah you, there's a social element you go there with your buddies or your friends and you all jump in together oh jesus christ freeze go and you come out you know it this boosts all these endorphins and there's all these effects on your immune system that are beneficial really so, absolutely so that's, so, a, that's a proven like, one that we like if that. we if everyone here was like fuck it i'll have a cold shower well, now, there's a good question. They haven't done... I, I think oh, the you social must immerse. Bit, I think the social bit's as important, potentially. Do you think social because every morning you're mixing with humans and mixing yeah, germs? absolutely. No, no, you're just, just hanging out with people, the social activity. You're just, just with your Improving friends. Improving the mood. And you're in, you're in this... And people are terrified of it. Have you ever done it? It's fucking awful. <laughs> I haven't done that, but I tell um, you what I... Like, I will get up in the morning and go for a run, even if it's raining, yes, in the freezing yeah. cold. And I find when I do that... Nothing can stress me for the rest of the day because I've ran in the freezing rain. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And you're, you're probably, without food, just running in the rain. And the Vim Hof, you're meditating when you're running kind Absolutely. of. Your mind is somewhere else. That's a very important thing Actually, to do, by the way, as well, to get your mind off your has worries. Has anything you know? been studied, Luke, into meditation and immune system or even, um, like... Like I said, I'm worried about the amount of sleep I get, but yeah. I do meditate. Yeah. Has anything... There's not as much on actually studying meditation as a way to boost the immune system, to my knowledge. I don't, there's not as much as on the cold immersion thing, for instance. There's some studies on it, but not as much. But we do know that getting your mind into a different place is beneficial, as, as we all know anyway. You know? And that can be music. It can be... You know, one of the big ones is joining a choir. There's a number of really compelling studies. If you're in a choir... You get a lot less risk of all these different diseases, less, less Alzheimer's, less depression, you know. And the reason is you're focusing on the music and, and you're concentrating on it. You're in a group. Again, the social bit's very important, you know. And you're lifted by the music and then the audience enjoy it as well. So there's lots of beneficial effects of being in a choir. I think a lot of it is like meditation, though. You know, it, it is actually getting your mind into a better place for a while and then back to your day-to-day worries after, mm-hmm. you see. And cold immersion and meditation is probably achieving that as well. It may be you can jump into the sea on your own. I don't, nobody's compared it, but, but part, people suspect it's the social aspect is beneficial What about as well. um, the fact that you get all that salt water going through your nose and you're cleaning out? You never know. You never know. That could be part of it as well. Exactly. A saline okay. thing might the work. The saline thing, well. yeah. 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 The other great one I like on this, though, is, is alcohol good for you, right? Now, mm-hmm. we've studied this a lot. I have studied myself a lot. You know, N equals one. The hangovers can be terrible, right? But forgetting that, there was lots of studies showing that um, moderate alcohol was good for you, okay? So, so if, you, if, you want, if you've, low alcohol isn't great, too much is definitely no good. It's in the middle, you know? Now, in the middle means two glasses of wine a day, say, or a pint a day. That kind of level was beneficial, it seems. And then lots of studies have proven this. This is true, right? The question then was, was it the alcohol that was beneficial or what was the reason? And again, it was social activity. You were meeting your mates and having a drink and having a conversation and all that kind of thing, you know? And that was the benefit. It wasn't actually necessarily the alcohol that was beneficial at all. Too much alcohol is Social media is probably fucking us all up then because you're not... Absolutely. That's a big negative with social media. It's not the same by any means, you know? So um, there could be something in the alcohol because the one drink didn't do it and you're still with your friends, I suppose. So alcohol does relax you a little bit. And that might open up some of these pathways and, and they're beneficial. But the main function is social. There was a, uh, there's a theory that the scientific enlightenment of the 17th century happened when coffee became available in uh, Europe. Yep. Because People again, stopped drinking beer and they socialised and they and met started up drinking coffee in Dublin as well. But oh, it's yeah. fucking caused them to think more rather than yeah. to get slower with the drink. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's exactly what the Quakers, they wanted to have coffee instead of alcohol, yeah. you see. So, and then all these benefits. I think it was mainly, again, people meeting <laughs> and talking about things and, you know, coming up with plans together. We're a very social species, remember. And that's why loneliness and all that, that's yeah. a massive negative because we evolved to be social, you know, to yeah. be with each other like we are tonight, for instance. You know? So it's a wonderful thing. Loneliness is a scourge, and, and again, the body doesn't like it and goes into this different state, yeah. and then it's negative, you know. So I think um, the coffee bit and the alcohol is definitely to do with social bonding as much as anything. Um, I'll take one more question. What have we got? Preferably a bit of gender balance. We've had one woman and two boys. There we go, yonder. Um, how does cystic fibrosis work? 
Oh, yeah, that's, well, that's a great question to ask, to be honest, in Ireland especially. So, now, again, I've, I met the people who... I'm lucky enough, I'm old enough to meet some of the people who made these discoveries in a way, you know. So they knew it was a lung disease, obviously. That was about 50 years ago. And then they find that there's a protein in the lung that controls salt balance in your lung. And we all have this protein, and it keeps the salt levels low, if you like, or, or, or in, in kilter. CF is a mutation in the gene for those proteins that regulate salt and they're broken now and you can't regulate salt in your lungs the salt builds up mucus spills up and their bacteria start to grow there in these biofilms and that really irritates the lungs you know so the, and the lung the cysts are caused by bacteria fibrosis is an inflammatory reaction happens and tries to repair it and all this tissue grows and the lungs are eventually destroyed right and that was known about maybe 25 30 years ago. That suggested a therapy. So if we could correct the gene for that protein, we would fix it and stop it in its tracks. And there are gene therapy trials happening now to correct that genetic difference in people who carry that mutation, you see. But more importantly, a company called Vertex, who I'm I'm familiar with in, in, in Boston, they discovered a drug that could bind the protein that was broken and get it to work properly. It's amazing. And it's a tablet you take now. It hits off the damaged protein now begins to work properly, and that's the big breakthrough. That's called Kaleidico, and now Trifecta is the follow-on, and that's a slightly different one, but it's all about getting the the broken proteins to work properly. There's another one as well, there's two of them, uh, and get them to work properly, right? And now that's the treatment that's been approved. So the vista for CF has changed massively because of Vertex's discovery, and they were getting like 80% efficacy in the trials in patients. So again, you can see now how that would be a big breakthrough because now the broken protein begins to do its job. And the salt balance is restored in the lungs. And that's why we like CF as an example, because all, that, all those years of effort have finally yielded a medicine. Now, of course, getting back to our first question, why was the price of this is expensive, you know? Um, the HSC, you said they take it on, though, which is the big news Pretty for good. cystic fibrosis. So fantastic. I think it's about 400 grand a patient or something. Um, but still, HSC... But if the government pays for it, who gives a shit? I want my fucking taxes to go to that. Yeah, but the but other seriously, th- that's what I want my taxes to go to. Pay for cystic And the other thing is, people. if you're a CF sufferer, you're a massive cost on the health service anyway. They can counterbalance that, you see, with the drug now. Mm-hmm. Less, less, less time in hospital anyway. Can you yeah. talk about... This is uh, something that's very interesting about cystic fibrosis. The evolutionary genetic trade-off that would create something like cystic fibrosis? Absolutely. That's a big question because it does persist in the population. It's unusual that you'd see that gene persisting because the people should die off, basically. I know it sounds a bit harsh, but they shouldn't be procreating because they've got an illness. If you're heterozygous, which means you carry one broken one and one that works, okay, that seems to give a slight advantage to you. If you've got two, you know, we've got two, two copies of every gene in our body, as you may know. If you carry two broken ones, you get cystic fibrosis. But some people carry a broken one and one that works. And they have increased fertility, the salt balance, interestingly, in their seminal plasma, the men, they're a bit more fertile. And it'll be a fertility thing. Secondly, they seem to resist cholera. That's a strange one. They say more, whatever their lungs are, they get less cholera for whatever reason. So that, that could be why that gene persisted. But the danger is when you carry both broken types, you get cystic fibrosis. I heard that um, cystic fibrosis evolved at a time in, we'll say, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were in Africa. Cholera was, killing, was such yep. a deadly killer that it was a beneficial trade-off. Absolutely. That, that's why it persisted in that population. Yeah. Some people carry the broken one, and then you can get away with it. If, 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 let's say the, the, the ones who have two broken copies, they were dying anyway, sadly. That didn't really matter. The ones with one broken one working, they were surviving cholera. And then you can see it persisting. You know, and that, that may be why it happened, we think. Yeah. Um, all right, so, lads, it's nearly, it's nearly 11. Um, thank you so much to Luke, that, uh, Luke O'Neill. That was fucking... Thank you. Thank you very much. Incredibly... Interesting, and it was so much crack. And 
isn't it lovely? Isn't it just lovely to have someone speak about really, really complex fucking things and to be like, I understand all of this. Isn't that a fucking pleasure? So thank you. And let's thank you to Ollie E for being so sound. It was a lovely evening. All right, have a good night.